welcome back to this brand new episode of the Silmarillion Film Project. I am your co-host, Dave Kale, coming to you from, yeah, it's pretty sunny here in Pasadena. It's starting to look like summer, finally. Uh, and you can, It's April, so yeah. finally. I mean, good and great. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, we're used to it starting earlier and earlier, than right. I feel like, the right. last few years. Um, and I'm just going to apologize about the. Uh, you can you can probably hear my toddler son running around squealing in glee downstairs. Um, <laughs> um, but I think that's just part of the charm of the opening. Oh, it's, it's, uh, it's part of this particular podcast. It's part of the brand. Right. Yeah, squealing toddlers absolutely. and yelling birds. It's certainly part of the brand. That's for sure. <laughs> so um, we're well, starting. Wally's ex- probably going to become a super famous now. I had a oh, friend yeah. of mine. He actually frequent on Corey's uh Corey's streams and he said the, he was in a store the other day and he heard a noise and he goes is buddha here it's buddha and he here. turned exactly. the corner yeah. and it was a child screaming people, people are people are having people are having like ptsd now they're like oh god was that a toddler or a parent <laughs> or was that, was that buddha? Right. yeah that's right yeah. um so uh, we're we've, we're excited. We're entering an exciting phase. We're in an exciting phase of mm-hmm. our podcast, which is we're finally discussing episode outlines, which yes. is which is great. Yeah, which is great. Yeah. Um, so anyway, without further ado, uh, I am joined as always by the Tolkien professor Corey Olson, and thankfully Trish Lambert, the Tolkien yeah, Maven. I was say, not necessarily as always the Tolkien <laughs> Maven. That's, right. that's right. That's why. That's why I'm. That's why I'm incredibly grateful. So. Affording yeah. you, how are y'all? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. you get my, you got my, you, you, I'm, I'm back, so that means a lot of off-topic jokes, <laughs> you know, that only well, tangentially the... apply to the Silmarillion. Hey, well, That's this is, this is as Dave says. I mean, this is this is going to be, uh, it's going to be a fun session. We're going to be finishing our looking at the 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 sort of big picture of the season, which has been so challenging to sort out here in season four, but it's been. Uh, it's been a really, uh, it's been a really interesting uh, kind of challenge. I've been really enjoying thinking this stuff through. Um, different kinds of questions that we've had to deal with here than we have in in seasons past, and I think it's been really fun. Uh, so, trying to sort of solve the last few issues here this morning, and then begin to kind of go through, make sure that we, you know, to to basically apply what we've just been talking about, right? And think through it on an episode by episode basis. We're not going to spend too long on each episode. That is like what, what we're doing. I just wanted to, to sort of make expectations clear, right? What we're going to do right now is not like plan out scene by scene. Um, what, uh, you know, each episode is how each episode is going to go, right? Let's, we're going to leave that to the, uh, the, the, the outline writing team as usual. Um, but just kind of thinking through, uh, making sure now to kind of track episode by episode, how all of those plot lines, thinking about that, that Gantt chart we were looking at last time, uh, and all that stuff to, to, to really begin to think through, uh, and make sure we can conceptualize how all of this works and, and kind of do one last pass through it. But that we're not going to, we're not going to take too long per episode. That at least is the goal. Um, exactly, Marie. It's the script team who's going to be working on the specific details, and we're going to largely leave them to that. Though, of course, there may be moments and scenes and pictures and things that kind of come to us as we go through that we'll uh, we'll sort of share. Um, anyway. All right, so let's uh, let's jump in. Uh, just a couple quick announcements this morning. Uh, uh, Nadermoot is almost here. Next Saturday, a week from tomorrow, is Nadermoot, our first uh, uh, Signum Moot in continental Europe. 
In fact, first time I've ever been to continental Europe. I've never even traveled there before. Um, all of my European travel so far has been in the UK, basically, because uh, uh, I keep getting drawn over there for you know academic conferences and things like that, Tolkien stuff and everything. So I'm usually uh, in uh, England and Wales, um, but I'm excited. I'm excited to go to the Netherlands. I can't wait for Nadermoot um, uh, to see Leiden and uh, and and of course, uh, most importantly, uh, get to meet and visit with all the folks over there. Um, so if you can get yourself to Leiden next Saturday, you should absolutely join us. It's going to be great fun. Um, go to signumuniversity.org slash event, as you can see uh, here on the screen, and you'll see the uh, the, the entry there for Nadermoot. Uh, and of course, Mythmoot 6 is coming up at the end of June. That seems, that's, of course, substantially further away, but of course, it's getting closer all the time, and Mythmoot is our big session uh, for the year um the 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 sort of the culminating event of our moot calendar the regional moots are are a wonderful opportunity to go around and for for uh, you know people who are kind of more local to kind of gather together in a way that's that's sort of easier for many people um but anybody who can make our like one big central international gathering there uh at myth moot every year it is such a, a wonderful experience just to be immersed uh, in in this, being surrounded by like-minded, wonderful people, uh, and uh, you know, talking and discussing and having fun with this stuff for for several days on end. Uh, absolutely fantastic. So, uh, anyway, that's uh, uh, that's coming up. Uh, you can register again. You can get the uh, link to the MythMoot page on signumuniversity.org/event. All right, so let us uh, 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 think for a second about some of these lingering issues from the overall um, the overall plot thing. So uh, uh, Nick created a, a visual tool for us, and uh, uh, and thanks by the way, Nick, for this. This is uh, this is very helpful. Let me see if I can bring this up here. Okay, here's his uh, visual representation of the plot arcs from this season, which I think does a great job of uh, indicating how. Um, complex the kind of complexities that we're sort of dealing with here i think this is a really interesting way to think about this one thing i have to admit nick is that i'm not 100 percent sure i understand what the y-axis is like the numerical representation of the y-axis i mean i understand that like zero is like it doesn't like that that plot line doesn't occur in this episode right we're not we're not dealing with that at all and six is like this is like the big you know, climax of that, uh, you know, sort of the, 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 the major crisis of that plot line, um, you know, before it sort of, you know, tails off towards resolution. Um, I think that's cool. So it's a representation of the midpoint of the plot line, Nick. Okay. All right. Uh, I can, uh, I can see that. And in fact, uh, one of the things, Nick, that this, I'm not going to try to necessarily tease all of this out, um, because that would take some doing for one thing. Uh, but, but Nick, I will tell you, this really helped me, right? This really helped me because as soon as I was looking at this, okay, not as soon as I glanced at it, it took me a little while to parse it. But once I did parse it, I think I can immediately see the problem that is leading to the like last big lingering issue, uh, that we didn't get to discussing last time. Those of you who were with us last time will remember that uh, the, uh, the 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 buck that I was passing down to this week, last week, was the dragon issue, right? What about Glaurung? Um, 
So let's let's uh, sort of look at that here. We've got the the primary issue, the thing that a lot of people on the discussion boards have been concerned about, is that is the question of surprise, right? If Glowering is a surprise out of nowhere in the finale, it will feel disconnected from the rest of the season. That's the anxiety that a lot of people are having um, that we're suddenly introducing this new care. If we suddenly introduce, you know, so if we if we have it be a surprise, right, then. Uh, we're, suddenly we've got this character out of nowhere and and again episode 13 seems like rather than a culmination of the season it seems like a non sequitur in a sense from the rest of the season and i get that um and there are a number of suggestions for how we can work glaurung's character uh in earlier um and i think that there's there's definitely some uh uh you know some value in any one of these suggestions i think that like we could do some of these things there are a couple things that i i'm not thrilled with the concept of first of all the thing that i think is most important i'm okay if we want to introduce glaurung earlier in the season like if we want to build up glaurung's presence and identity earlier on the one thing that I I I, I think is uh, very certainly a bad idea, right, is we need to make sure that at no time, under any circumstances, does Glaurung appear on screen and our audience goes, "Aww," right? Like if we do that, we're doing it wrong, right? Clearly, so like baby dragon, even like sort of mini scale <laughs> dragon, there's a chance he's gonna look cute. And if Glaurung looks cute, we failed. I mean, I just, I think that would be a really bad idea. Um, so I, I'm, I, you know, and, and, and like having him hang out as Morgoth's pet, like at the beginning, like again, I, um, first of all, not only do I not ever want any, because if we have him be adorable, even a little bit adorable at the beginning, right? If we invite people to imagine him in this kind of domestic sort of or like domesticized is that a word domestic it's not domesticated but in a domestic ish uh perspective right that's gonna linger right and i don't want people to be like coming to glaurung when he's you know destroying nargothrond and being like oh but i remember when he was so adorable right like it's just i i don't want that he needs to be horrifying i think from the beginning um so uh Anyway, I, I, I definitely uh, I definitely don't. Uh, and so again, even in, and, and having him be in sort of pet category, I, I'm not a fan of that either because of who he is. Right. Glowering is very proud, very proud um, and have him like even like fawning on um Melkor like to be he would find that demeaning his spirit is grown up he's not an infant right um I, I, so I, I don't, even if his body is maturing I don't think that uh, we would want his spirit to be adolescent exactly right um he can be learning he can act foolishly I mean it can still be that his uh breaking out prematurely here at the end of the season can still be a rash and in the end unwise move by him again he doesn't have to be um to have reached his full maturity of you know strategy and and uh uh you know mentally in the same way as he's not going to have reached his full maturity physically but i i, I wouldn't want to have him actually immature in a more uh 
in a more uh, so in, in a sort of broader sense. Now, the other thing that I have to admit, I now and this I'm a little bit. I, and of course, I'm always if people are would want to make a case, I'm always willing to be convinced, and sometimes I am even by things that I just don't think I would be. So, but I'm not hugely fond of the uh, meeting the spirit who wants to be Glaurung earlier on either. Um, mostly because, well, I don't know. I wouldn't know how to depict that. Um, I think it would be confusing. <clears throat> and I don't, I, I don't know that it's necessary at all. Here's... Let me come at this from another direction. Here's my primary thought about the Glaurung thing. I don't think we need to worry about this so much. Um, I think that, well, let me go back to Nick's chart. Notice the red line, right? The red line, which you can see at the bottom of if it's, the print is rather small over here, is Glaurung's debut, right? So the Glaurung's debut line sits at zero almost all the time, pops up once, presumably when we get some kind of preview of him right here, and then goes back to zero until blammo, right? It appears right here. And, and this, I think, is, you know, sort of designed in part to sort of illustrate the problem, right? I think it does illustrate the problem, but the problem is not the, the sudden introduction of Glaurung. The problem is the way that we are conceiving of that plot line, right? Um, I would recommend a complete change of the way that we're looking at this question, right? And because here's the other thing that looking at, the, there are two things that I noticed. As soon as I saw that on this chart, I was like, okay, right, I see the problem with that, right? The problem is that we're thinking of Glaurung as a plot line. Glaurung isn't a plot line. Glaurung isn't the story. Even in episode 13, episode 13 isn't about Glaurung, right? He's the occasion of the action, Right. But he's not the hero of of episode 13. He's not the main character of episode 13. The main characters of episode 13 are the folks who are fighting Glaurung. Right. Um, and they are in the season all the way through. And there is every reason there is every opportunity for building up the story, their storyline, which is going to culminate in them fighting Glaurung in episode 13 on this uh, very colorful and complicated list of plot lines. You know what plot line is not here at all? The no, like the, the siege of Angband, right? There is no siege of Angband plot line here. We've got the intranoldor reconciliation, right? So how they're relating to each other. We've got the issues of the Noldor and the Sindar and everything, but there is no arc for the whole setup and attitude towards the war against Morgoth. And that should be a major plot arc over the course of the season. We were talking about that a little bit at the end of last time, thinking about Fingolfin, when you guys were convincing me that Fingolfin should be the, the one who is the spokesperson for uh, being overconfident, right, after the Daghor Aglareb. That he should be the one who, after the battle, is like, see, look, you know, we got this, this is great. So that his despair after the Daghor Bragalak, his despair in the, you know, at the end of season five is going to be sort of more psychologically compelling. I like that. I think that's a great suggestion. Um, uh, 
but again, the point is that's a major plot line. How people, what people's attitude towards, and we talked about this in other ways too last time, right? This is also, I think, how the Nargothrond and Gondolin plot lines can be connected to everything else. They're not only connected to the issue of reconciliation among the Noldor and between the Noldor and the Sindar. That's they're, they're a big part of that that arc as well. But they're also a part of the what what are we the elves of Beleriand doing? Like, how do we relate to Angband and how are we thinking about Angband, right? Are we really focused on the leaguer? Is that what we're doing? Or are we trying to just kind of do our own thing and hoping things are going to work out, right? Are we going to, are we, ta- are we being more isolationist or less isolationist? Are we being more militant or less militant? Are we working together or is that not our top priority? We talked about Finrod and Finrod's vision, right? And how the Nargothron vision, you know, so we've got first, um, uh, uh, Finrod at Minas Tirith, right? And then him also then building the sort of secret fortress, right, at Nargothrond and how he sees this as part of the war effort and that his, uh, a, a, you know, much of his, not all, but much of his relationship with Thingol and with the Sindar is also, like, he is one of the ones who is most committed to bringing the Sindar into the war effort. Like, we, we've got to oppose Morgoth. I think that that's great. Um, uh, anyway, so... Um, so I think that that's uh that's all good. Like and 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 we can also put um Turgon into that context as well, right? Turgon has a different attitude towards the war, right? He's not he's taking the Gondolindrum or they who shall become the Gondolindrum off the field, right? He's taking them off the board when it comes to, you know, laying the siege of Angband. That's a pretty significant choice, as we will see uh, in the Near Nyth Arnoidiad when Turgon and the Gondolindrim show up. It's kind of a big deal, um, you know. Like they, they are a they are a significant military force, Turgon and the Gondolindrim. So, you know, his choice to be like, okay, this whole realm of you know a uh, uh, mingled Noldor and and Sindar, we're out. We're not going to participate in the siege at all. We're going to hide. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. And so, again, it fits into that plot arc of how are we going to handle this situation? And Turgon is going in a different direction, right? And one of the things that I think that we can, that the impact, therefore, Glaurung's, the point of Glaurung's attack is the role that it plays, I think, at the end, like where we're leaving this, why it, why it's the finale, right? Like why we chose that as the finale for the season is that it leaves the season on a, uh, it, it doesn't resolve things, right? It's not the end exactly of a storyline, but it's a, tra- it's, it's a, it's, it's a look, it's a, uh, it answers a bunch of questions from earlier on and it points or rather points to the answers of these questions, right? Again, nothing is settled yet, but those like Fingolfin who think they have the situation under control, right? Like we understand what the circumstances here in Beleriand are and we have it handled, right? When Glaurung escapes, this is a clear indicator no, you don't. The situation is changing and it's going to change more, right? You're not actually prepared for what Morgoth is going to be able to throw at you. The, the, the situation is a little more dynamic. Than you you want to s- settle into this static, 
you know, leaguer, right? Uh, think you could just besiege him and then move on with your lives, right? Um, it's not going to, he's not going to let you do that. It's not going to work. He's going to throw something new at you. And here is something new, right? That's why I think it's fine. Not only fine, good. I, I like the idea of the, of having the dragon be a surprise. And I don't think there's any problem at all with having the threat that comes at the end of the, of the season be something that was unanticipated by everybody. That seems to me a very logical culmination of that plot arc of the, Let's besiege Angband and keep everything under control. And that arc ends with Angband showing them you don't have everything under control. You haven't anticipated everything. Um, so um, I think to, to me, that's totally fine. Introducing a new the sudden introduction of a new character, like a new character arriving on the scene and are needing to getting to get to know him later doesn't seem to me like a problem, especially since, again, I, Glaurung, I don't think should be the focus. I would be fine, by the way, if we never even established Glaurung's personality in season four at all. Leave that for season five and beyond, right? Um, all we need to... And and it wouldn't come out of... It wouldn't be a non sequitur if we just have some... And all we need is somebody, somebody among the elves to have a foreboding that something is coming that they don't expect, right? All we need is one person. Turgon, perhaps, suggests himself, right? Have Turgon at the Merith Adderthad saying, uh, okay, I think, um, I think there's, I have a bad feeling about this, right? Have him say, I think that something is coming that we don't anticipate. Um, I think that Morgoth has something that we've never seen. He's going to come up with stuff that we've never seen, and this is going to be harder than y'all think, right? And have people be like, you know, some people be uneasy and some people be like, no, I think we got this. I think it's fine. Then the Dagor Aglareb happens, right? The orcs attack. And so the people who said, I think we got this and are fine, like Fingolfin and others, uh, will be like, see? See, Targon, it wasn't so bad after all. Like, you thought something bad was coming. And, it, you know, it was, like, not great, but we totally handled it, right? So it's fine. And then have Targon be like, um, uh, uh, that, that totally wasn't it, right? There's there's more. There's something else. This is This was... Uh, this was a sideshow, right? This is not the real thing. Um, Hakan, I agree. I think it would be pretty cool if Glaurung doesn't speak at all until season six. Um, though I'd kind of want him to speak. I think, I think we should introduce him at the end of season. I mean, I, 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 I would kind of like him to speak in the battle, honestly. But uh, anyway, so Nick, yeah, show the finale from the Elvish perspective. That's exactly how I think we should play it. And if we do that, the continuity with the rest of the scene is, or with the rest of the season is really simple. Um, I think that that's, uh, that's totally fine. Um, so like we anticipate something is coming and then it does come right. And it's, and, and so the note that we leave the season with like the, what, happens in the finale is the confidence of those who are overconfident should be shaken, right? The feeling, I, I, I think that the, the dominant feeling that we want to conjure in the finale of this season is dread, right? Dread of what is to come. And the sudden unexpected arrival of Glaurung, he's beaten back, right? So we have a satisfactory ending of the action. We have triumphant, heroic action at the end. Right. Which is going to fuel the. Uh, but though I think the the number of people who are overconfident should decrease. Right. Between the Dagor Aglareb and the end of season third, uh, the end of session 13 of episode 13. 
Um, I think that fewer people should be overconfident after Glaurung, but some still will be, right? Fingolfin still could be. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, I think it's, um, I think it's fine. So Maria, I am totally okay with Morgoth being off screen for the majority of the season. Absolutely. Okay. With Morgoth being okay, uh, uh, off screen for the majority of the season. Yes. Um, so yeah, Marie, I think that's a really good way to handle it. Um, Fingon and Fingolfin, of course, are going to be the primary folks who are involved in fighting off, uh, Glaurung, right? I would be fine if we wanted to arrange it in such a way that they weren't the only ones, right? I think we could bring we we could choose to bring some other people into the action uh, there if we wanted to, but it, primarily it's got to be Fingolfin and Fingon, um, and I think if we if we have them divided, so have the two of them confident after the Dagor Aglarep, right? After the meeting with Glaurung, have Fingolfin still confident, but Fingon worried. That seems to me a really satisfactory um, uh, solution to that. I mean, in some ways it would be tempting for it to go the other way because Fingon will be the one who defeated it, Ellen, as you point out. But at the same time, we need Fingolfin. I mean, if, 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 the, if how we're going to set up his despair and challenging of Morgoth to a duel is that it begins with overconfidence. I think we're kind of stuck with having him overconfident after, after Glaurung. Um, uh, so yeah, I, Ellen and Hakan, I agree with you. I'll come back to that in a second. I agree with you. That's a poser. Uh, uh, the, uh, Ellen and Hakan are reminding me that we've got an issue with the spell of bottomless dread. You're absolutely right. And we'll come back and talk about that in a second. Um, so, Again, this is why I don't think I don't think that we need to tease Glaurung at all. I think we could just we could unleash Glaurung from scratch. Here's another reality of the matter. Dragons are going to be super surprising to the elves of Beleriand. A dragon is not going to be super surprising to our audience, right? Um, dragons are brand new in Beleriand. They are old hat in the fantasy TV world, right? So, in fact. The harder challenge, I think, we have to be careful, and this, I think, is a challenge for our visual uh, 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 creatives, you know. It's going to be hard not to make Glaurung look a little bit lame, because he doesn't have wings. We're used to winged dragons, especially post-Game of Thrones. People are used to winged dragons, Right. Um, even Tolkien people who's who, when you say dragon, think first of Smaug and, and not first of Glaurung um, are going to imagine a winged dragon. Right. So when we introduce a dragon and instead of sweeping up majestically on enormous wings and flying down and 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 destroying things, he's just landlocked. Right. There's a risk that that looks kind of lame. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I figured you guys are discussing this on the, uh, you know, that, that we, we have artwork and stuff and I know, I, I know I can trust this stuff to you guys. I just wanted to point that out. That seems to me like, like a, a more pressing issue. Um, and another reason why I don't think we exactly have to tease him in some ways, I think that the desire to introduce him earlier in the season and introduce his storyline earlier in the season as understandable as that is, um, I actually think it makes the problem worse instead of better. Uh, yeah. 
I agree. I, I think the more time he spends on screen, the worse the worse it's going to get. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's like I, I think I think this is a case. <clears throat> if we're thinking about this as an adaptation. I think this is a case where you really we have to get out of our own heads as Tolkien fans. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, who are like, what are you talking about? Glaurung's scary. <laughs> the only person who would say that is a person who's like been reading the Silmarillion for years right. and has like conditioned themselves to feel that way. But for like a person who's coming from, say, the Game of Thrones or something like that, uh, who this their first experience of Glaurung is him on screen, not going to be impressed. Not right. going to be impressed, right? And, and and no amount of like good special effects and and excellent design, I think, will fully mitigate that. Like it's just he just doesn't meet like now. And Caligon the Black, I think people would be pretty pretty would feel find pretty awesome. But right. like yeah, people people are going to be kind of like he just seems like kind of a dinosaur almost because he doesn't fly. Because he doesn't so, fly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely I, a risk. And you're right, we, we are to, in a Game of Thrones world. So yes, it yeah, is I think we have to accept it. that and, and like plan around it rather than but barrier. I, I think, rather than um, like, you know, say like, well, people should just get with the program, this is Tolkien. Like I think we have to I, plan around it. I think if we're able to this could be a non sequitur, I don't know, but let me just give this a shot. Not worry so much about the viewer reaction as get the inve- get the viewer invested in the elves' reactions. Right. Yes. You know what exactly. I mean? It's like we're not – don't worry so much about how the viewer is going to take it, but have them identify so closely with the elves that they feel for the elves when – Yes. Yeah, I think you're right, Yes. Which, which probably means not showing him on a screen as much. At least the, the more we show him on screen where there aren't people – where there aren't elves reacting in terror to him on screen, the less scary he's going to seem. Yes. That's true. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. I think that's a really great point, especially since so the reason Glaurung is, Glaurung is is scary. Like I, I'm not trying. I don't. I want to make sure nobody thinks I'm trying to suggest that um you know the the like Tolkien's character of Glaurung is a lame dragon. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying it's 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 one of the challenges of visual adaptation. Right? That would be a good yeah. pub name. The lame, the, the lame dragon. <laughs> Yes. Yes. It would be. It would be. Um, I think I think what makes him scary, unfortunately, are things that aren't going to translate to the screen quite as well. Exactly. Exactly. Certainly. And 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 exactly as you were saying are, are, are going to translate least well when he is on screen by himself. Right. It is the like the aura of the dragon that is scary. Right. It's not just like I'm scared, like I am I am affected as a person when I am looking at this dragon because he is large and scaly, breathes fire and flies. Right. It's not the mere. There is an awe about the dragon like there. there the, it is the power of his personality. Right. Um, you know, th- thinking of Smaug's rather overwhelming personality. Right. And Glaurung's much more overwhelming personality. Um, and so, Dave, coming back to what you were saying about and, – and Trish, about elves reacting to them, right? We need to have the right. elves' reaction to them. And they can talk about it. Like, we can do this in dialogue to some extent as well. It's – they react to him not just as a monster who's big and scary, but, like, they can – there is something – off about this guy. He, right. He, he, he creeps them out. He disturbs them in, um, 
in some ways that are like just it goes beyond the mere physical threat of his physical stature and abilities, right? And we need to convey that. It's a primal that. thing yes. if you can apply primal to elves. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, Marie, they can talk about his malevolent will, and Ellen, I absolutely agree. The, what we want to go for there—that's a great way of talking about it, Ellen—is is like wraiths, right? We want to show them having a reaction like people have a reaction when a ring wraith walks in the room. And it's not because they're wearing creepy armor and have a big sword, right? It is the mere presence of them, which affects you in some deep and fundamental way. And we need to show Glaurung having that. I really like the suggestion um, uh, that uh, a couple people were making. Hakan was suggesting this. Uh, Ellen was suggesting this. To, to to show a much more dramatic effect on the landscape, like show the plants withering as he walks by, right? You know, he comes out and it's not just that he breathes fire, but like there's this like invisible cloud that goes before him that makes like animals flee. But I don't know if we want to have birds dropping dead because that would be comical, but... um uh, but like again, like plants withering, uh, y- you know, a- 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 yeah, to sort of show it's not just that he's large, strong and has, you know, big teeth. Right. It is that or even breathes fire. The pro- it, he is himself a force, like a magical force, a force of will um, like he, 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 he hits you like a wraith, worse than a wraith, differently, but worse. Um, so, um yeah, both Phil and Tony are thinking of uh, are thinking of the Dementors as well. Tony says it's 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 like the heat equivalent of what happens when the Dementors show up. Yeah, something like that. Again, it's 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 more, yes. Uh, we need to invest in atmosphere here, right? Uh, with with the dragon, even if he doesn't speak yet. I think especially if he doesn't speak yet. Um, I really don't want him to talk in episode thirteen. Right. Because I want that. I want his his voice. Right. The hypnotic, mesmerizing, overwhelming power of his word and his will uh, to be a thing that we save for him down the road. People are talking about, like, maybe we don't have him breathe fire now. Maybe we have him like breathe fire later. I do think that we need to, like, save some, you know, bullets in the chamber as far as Glowering is concerned. So that when he comes back in the Dago or Bragalock, he is a much bigger threat than we saw him at the end of season four. But I don't think it's fire. I think it's, it's his words that we want to hold back that we want to save. Um, if we can establish that he is just this like large, terrifying death machine, right? Right. He is like this, this creepy, uh, 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 horrifying avatar of death moving through the land. Right. And the, and it makes the elves like freak. Um, and then like, that's bad enough. Right. And he breathes fire. Right. That's, 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 that's really bad. Then we add on the fact that like, oh my gosh, he talks. Right. And he doesn't, and, and, and like he, he is a master manipulator and like can enthrall the wills of people just by looking at them and speaking to them. I mean, holy cow. Right. That's, um, uh, that is a whole new level of terrifying about Glaurung. Um, scary when he comes like charging up and tries to bite you right but think of how much more profound the effect will be when he comes up and instead just like speaks to you uh and oh my goodness and and like it's i think it's really it's really cool um so um so yeah tony exactly that's one of the ways in which we can make 
what, what from the elves perspective a shock right the elves are th- their interpretation of him is monster right beast there's this great beast who you know they would maybe class him in their heads in like the category of siege weaponry right um morgoth is breeding this enormous monster uh whom it took you know a whole you know, regiment of our horse archers to chase off, right? And he, you know, like, what if there are more of them? What if he comes back with 50 of them next time, right? We we might be, but they're not even expecting that that's not the primary force of Glaurung. That's not even his main weapon, right? Um, So, so yeah, yeah. And Nick, I agree. We've established people like Mithros, Fingolfin, and Fingon as being extremely brave and the most the most onward into battle, right? To use a to use a to use a Tolkien phrase, um, uh, we we we've established that. So if they are intimidated, right? If they are affected, if they have to, I mean, we can have them kind of, uh, we, we, you know, even at the end, like after he's been chased away in the closing scenes of of uh, of episode thirteen, we can have them, you know, talking about it a little bit about the effect. You know, did you feel that? Like, what was that? They don't they don't understand it, right? Um, Nick, yes, he should be faster than horses. If he can't fly, he's got to be fast. If he's lumbering, then, then as Dave says, he is going to look like a dinosaur, right? We don't want him looking like a brontosaurus. I know there's no such thing as brontosaurus anymore, but anyway, you know what I mean? (laughs) That would make it even worse. It would make it even worse. Yeah. He's got to be fast. He's got to be fast. Um, and Marielle, that's exactly it. The rational, cunning, demonic danger is always more terrifying than the wild, ferocious, bestial, powerful, you know, physically powerful. Uh, cre- absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so that's how we can both reveal him and not reveal him, how we can reveal him and hold things back. Right. And again, if he isn't, if the focus of episode 13 is on the elves, not on the dragon, right, not from the dragon's point of view, certainly, we don't need to know why he's escaped. We can deal with that later if we want to right who is this guy anyway where did he come from and why did he escape if we want to deal with that later we can deal with that later um but um uh anyway um so um yeah oh, wait, that's, <laughs> you guys are the brontosaurus is back oh phew i don't have to throw away all my old plastic dinosaurs after all i'm so glad to hear that yeah, that's a that's a between. The, I mean, I have to admit, I was having a crisis in my adult life when first they get rid of the planet Pluto and then they get rid of the Brontosaurus. And I'm like my whole childhood falling around my ears. But whew, OK, that makes me feel better. Um, uh, definitely. Um, uh, definitely. He needs to be fast, I think. I have personally never been a big fan of the serpentine Chinese dragon. I never have. But it is clear that Tolkien does not share my prejudices on that point. Tolkien was clearly very fond of the serpentine dragon. Um, and we can see this very clearly in his own art. Um uh, so, um, Hakon, we don't have to know that he has escaped and, and isn't a planned excursion. No, we don't have to know that at all. Um, 
what would be kind of interesting to me is if, at, again, there's been a foreboding from Turgon or, or from somebody else, if we want, um, that more is coming, right? They're like a, d- a day of horror is approaching, right? When Morgoth is going to release something new that we've never seen before, right? The, the sort of steady state that the siege has fallen into, and it's been a long time, um, this is not going to last forever, right? The siege will be broken. Morgoth is going to unleash power that we have not expected and have not imagined. And so when Glaurung breaks out, they think that's it, right? They're like, okay. And so again, Fingolfin is like, and we handled it, didn't we? Right? Okay. So, Day of Doom, let's check that off the list, right? Because the Day right. of Doom has come. But of course, somebody, all we just need one person to be like, uh, not sure that was it actually, <laughs> right? That's a, this, this may only be a foretaste and not in fact the Day of Doom that was foreboded before. Um, so yeah, I, I, um, um, I think that, um, we can, uh, yeah, so Phil, I agree. Given that the way that we were thinking about Gondolin being like the 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 moving into Gondolin happening in episode thirteen, I think that that actually works really well. It gives us a, a good opportunity for Turgon to be the one who says, like, you know, he might not even know about Glaurung himself. Maybe he does. Um, maybe we have him interacting with that before you know he moves in. I don't know. Uh, we can sort that out when we get there. But um, but basically for for whether it be Turgon or whether it be somebody else to say like, no, like the day of doom is still coming. One of the things that I want to make sure that we do is to make sure that Gondolin doesn't look like a wimpy idea, right? We don't want to make Turgon look like merely a coward. There needs to be really good reasons to think that Gondolin is actually a, a, a spot on plan, right? And that it may be that, Turgon, which is kind of how we've set him up anyway, Turgon is is doing this not because he is fearful, not because he's cowardly, not because he's less cooperative than everybody else, but because he's wiser, right? Because he sees, um, uh, you know, uh, let's see, again, to quote a Tolkien line uh, out of context, Turgon's line is, um, you know, I still hope for victory, but not by arms. Right. Um, Might of arms is not going to work out. He, he, He knows that he sees that he sees that more clearly than anybody else. He's not contributing to the leaguer, not because he doesn't want to help, not because he's afraid, not because he's, you know, hunkering down and hiding behind, you know, his brothers and cousins, but because he sees more clearly than anybody else that this isn't going to work. And their only real hope is to try to preserve, uh, to conceal and hide and preserve, um, and let the, the waters break around them. Right. Um, anyway, so, so I, 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 that's, that's, uh, I think that whole attitude, you know, Glaurung's timing, the entering into Gondolin with the emergence of Glaurung, I think can work really well with that. Right. Um, as we're, we, one of the effects that we can try to build is to convey to our audience, Turgon's not wrong. You know, Turgon's not wrong. Like you can have different opinions about that. You can, you can, you can admire the spirit of Mithros and of Finrod and of Fingolfin. 
um, and of Fingen, right, as they're setting up the the more active leaguer and as they're standing up against Morgoth. You can you can admire the heck out of that, but you can't just dismiss Turgon. And 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 there there will be reasons to think at the end of season thirteen that you know he he might really be onto something. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah. Um, thinking about this, um, thinking about this as a kind of spectrum, right? It it seems to me looking at the different perspectives of five major figures, right? Mithros, Fingolfin, Fingon, Finrod, and Turgon. Right, I think we can kind of encapsulate the Noldor attitude towards the Siege of Angband in those five characters, and none of those five have to look at it exactly the same way, right? I think we can take advantage of the multiplicity of characters that we have in this show uh, in order to give some uh, uh, show some, you know, a spectrum of of reactions here, right? Um, so let's see. Uh, if we're on the same page about how we would articulate this, Ellen, I really like your suggestion of Finrod as, um, <clears throat> in a sense, sharing Turgon's vision, part of Turgon's vision, right? But he sees, let's see, uh, uh, Ellen, how did you put this? Um, it's still worthwhile to delay the inevitable defeat, right? Um, it's not that he necessarily thinks that it's going to work, right? But it's 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 the right thing to do. So we should do, we should stand against Morgoth, right? Um, even though um, uh, we're going to need a refuge, right? We're going to need a secret place because, you know, uh, I have reason to believe from an Olmo vision that uh, th- this siege is not going to last in this way forever, right? But I'm still going to participate because I think it's the right thing to do, right? On the other, and then we've got Turgon right on the other, you know, further down the spectrum from him saying, okay, no, there's no point. Like, let's not pursue it. Let's, let's, let's do something other than the siege, something other than the leaguer entirely. On the other end, we've got Mithros, right? Who's like, I am fighting Morgoth. That is the point, right? The point, it's not about strategy in a sense to Mithros, right? It's not about what will work. He is going to fight Morgoth until he is killed. And that's his attitude, right? So to some extent, he's sort of less strategic. Fingolfin is the one who has more, um, he also is determined to fight Morgoth. He's dedicated to that. Um, he's not quite as, uh, not quite as all in, right? He is thinking more. He, there's a sense in which Mithros, uh, this might be an exact, this is an exaggeration, but it's almost like Mithros doesn't even care if they win, right? He just, like, opposing Morgoth under any, at any cost and, and under any circumstances is what Mithros is about at this point, right? Fingolfin isn't quite there, right? He's still, he's High King, right? He's thinking of, of the people as a whole. He's still wanting to do what is best for the Noldor and believes that holding Morgoth in Liga, that opposing Morgoth is the right thing to do and holding him in Liger is the best plan. And he believes in that plan. And then that could work. So he's dedicated to it, not quite as sort of selflessly, right? As, uh, as, as Mithros, uh, not quite as, uh, uh, without any reference to, um, you know, his own benefit, to, uh, you know, like his own benefit and the benefit of others. Fingen would be sort of a step down, right? 
um, from Fingolfin. He would be equally dedicated to holding the siege, right? He believes in what his father is doing. He just doesn't share his father's confidence, right? Um, wants to hold the siege, believes that they should hold the siege, is dedicated to the siege, but does not share Fingolfin's um, confidence that it's going to work out, right? He's He would have more dread, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and absolutely, uh, uh, Marie and uh, Nick, absolutely, Fingolfin is still mad at the guy who killed his dad. Yeah, no, Fingolfin is, is he's, he is, he and Mithros totally have a meeting of the minds on the, like, we must fight Morgoth and never stop. Like, they absolutely agree on that. It's just the, the, the atmosphere, which is a little bit different, right? Um, uh, Mithros is a little bit more... I don't want to go so far as like monomaniacal when describing Mithros because I don't want to make him a parody, uh, you know, or or too simplistic a character post rescue. Um, but he again, like, he doesn't care what it costs. He's willing to do anything. Um, yeah, yeah, Ellen, I like that. Fingen isn't certain it can last forever, but he isn't certain it will fail. Um, yes, again, he's, it's still the right thing. Even if it is going to fail, it's still the right thing to do. So there's, there's more similarity between Fingon and Finrod, right? Um, uh, the difference would be that Finrod has more confidence that it's going to fail, right? He can feel more certain that ultimately this is not going to work out, but it's the right thing to do. Um, anyway. Okay. So moving on, moving on. Those I, I think that that and so again if that that's what I want a plot arc for right I want us I want us to be thinking about that those five characters maybe and we can include others but I'm not sure that the others we think five might be enough data points on this spectrum right in order to convey the differing attitudes towards it we don't necessarily have to situate every single character in relationship to this um, uh, or to say the same thing a different way perhaps those five characters provide us enough shades of different attitudes towards the situation that we can show up. So like Thingol, for instance, is much more towards Turgon's end, right? He, his focus is on like, they've got the girdle, right? So they're like, okay, uh, um, he's not focused on sending forth forces to resist Morgoth. He just wants to weather the storm in his forest, right? Um, and that's where he's focused on. So he's much more Turgon-like, but we don't need to like, place him explicitly. Kurofin is going to be more strategic than Mithros, but anyway, so again, I think that this is sort of, this is sort of enough. Um, uh, but, um, anyhow, uh, I, I think that if we, if we have a significant focus here, as we move through the season, episode 13 will come naturally. Yeah, it'll be a surprise. We'll get this monster out of nowhere and he will be a new monster. Right. But, the fact that new threats are coming will have been anticipated. It will have been a major plot line and we don't have to tease the dragon. He can come out and we don't know where he came from because we're focusing from the elves point of view there. Um, and, um, and it's, uh, it's all, and then what we have future seasons to develop, to, to learn more about Glaurung and to introduce his character more so that we know what we're dealing with when he comes out. Um, or at least so that we know what we're dealing with, uh, when he's going to interact with uh, Turin. Uh, so 
Yeah, I think that that'll all that that should make things easier. I hope. Um, but there's another issue I don't want to leave aside entirely either. Um, and um, here I want to come to uh, some of the things that something that Hakan uh, uh, was talking about on the discussion board. Um, it comes back to the whole the the question of of the dragon and the uh, backstory of the dragon and everything. Um, and I think is a really important general uh, topic. And yes, and I'm not going to forget the spell bottomless dread. I'm going to come back to that next. But but first, I want to talk about this this larger thing. Um, uh, Hakan points out that we decided early on in the project to show the bad guys. Right? Uh, Tolkien's text on the whole does very little of this, and not just the Silmarillion. Right? <clears throat> we were talking about this uh, in the context of Sauron in the Lord of the Rings. Were we talking about that here? Or was it somewhere else? I can never remember. I do so many broadcasts, I can't remember where I was having this conversation. I think it was here about how Sauron is such an effective villain in The Lord of the Rings because we never meet him, right? Because we don't see him. Was that here we were talking I'm, about that? I'm, I'm sure we talked about that at I'm some sure point. I'm sure we were, yeah. Um, anyway, but I agree. That is Tolkien's general approach. We do, you know, sometimes like meet the villains like we meet Saruman, unlike never meeting Sauron, right, in The Lord of the Rings. Um Anyway, it's it's all fine. Um but uh anyway, um as Hakon points out, we decided to go in a different direction from that. And we did that from the very beginning. And I don't regret that. I think that one of the things that it has enabled us to do in as much as we are sh- one of the primary differences that I would say that leads me to say to feel totally justified in going in a totally different direction from the direction from the whole approach that Tolkien took to depicting the bad guys. Right. Is that we're 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 looking at this story in much more detail. Right. We're 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 drawing this story out in a lot of ways. And so one of the things that we want from Morgoth at the very beginning of season one the the thing that that led to this that opened this whole door for us is our decision not just to depict Morgoth as you know uh uh the 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 sort of thoroughly evil like he just he he comes up and he's already the dark lord who seeks to dominate everything and is dedicated to evil like that's we decided not to do that that we would rather not have that be the way that we um, that we depict Morgoth, we wanted instead, since we're telling the story in more detail and introducing the characters of the Valar in ways that Tolkien doesn't do, right? And giving their story on a le- like, you know, coming down from the height from which the Valar story is described, uh, or maybe it's the other way around, actually. It's, it's at a distance, but it's not above, it's below, right? Looking up at the Valar and just sort of telling us what they, how they did things, right? Instead, we wanted to 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 get into their stories more, and that had to include Morgoth. It didn't have to, but it did include Morgoth, and I loved that. It was my favorite part of season one, was actually trying to show how does Morgoth fall, what leads to Morgoth's fall, because although Tolkien doesn't depict his villains in a lot of detail most of the time, we don't get a lot of their backstory. We ne- we very rarely get what they're thinking, right? You know, we we never get a scene from their point of view. Does that ever happen? Do we ever get a villain's point of view mm-hmm. scene? I don't think so. Um, the closest I can think of to it is the invasion of Crick Hollow by the Nazgul, which is almost from the Nazgul point of view. Not quite, right? We do get the dialogue, let the little people blow, right? That's, 
the, the Nazgul thinking, let the little people blow as they're riding out of Buckland is like the closest I can think of to, yeah, Marie was just thinking of the same thing. Yeah. That's the closest I can think of uh, to, uh, uh, to Tolkien depicting in his stories, the bad guy's point of view. Um, Tony, right. Good. There is, we get uh, when Frodo claims the ring, we get that one paragraph which talks about Sauron's reaction. You're right. Um, including that one awesomely structured sentence um, uh, uh, that, you know, from all his webs of, and policies of fear, from all his, uh, that, I mean, I love that, that uh, uh, architecturally, that sentence is one of my favorite sentences in all of Tolkien. Um, but anyway, um, ooh, Mario, good. We do get Morgoth's thoughts while watching Luthien dance. I agree. I was just thinking yeah. about that. I was trying to thank you for Morgoth, yes. if there was yes, a point. Yes, we do. You know. We do. Um, good, good. Yeah. So anyway, um, I, I think, that, and as Nick points out, even the scenes where the orcs are interacting with each other is still seen from the Hobbit's perspective, right? We don't get the orcs' perspective. You know, exactly. um, your point earlier, though, I think is really true. It, again, it makes me just really appreciate Tolkien again as a master, is the fall small t small f large yeah. t large f right. is an is an ubiquitous theme in tolkien but he yes. never directly addresses it right he, yeah yeah he doesn't he depicts certainly, it yeah. like morgoth but he never yes and he were told of it through other people i just think it's really masterful yeah yeah i agree and you know so we just, since we're lingering longer on the story, since we're developing these stories in a different mode and in a different way, we decided to to do that. We decided to show that. And we have gotten excited over the course of the years in particular of showing Sauron's character, right? And and what is going on with Sauron and his long path, right, towards destruction ultimately at the end. And we you know sort of talked about how Sauron is going to be our one consistent central character whom we're like never really going to lose. He's going to be uh, our primary character, the one character who will be in every single season, probably uh, that we, you know, I know do. we've said that before, but I don't know why it just hit me. anew that that's true. Yeah. How yeah, ironic. Mean, it is, it's, and, and it's, it's and I'm, so far from backing away from that. I think that we need to embrace that in interesting ways, but back to Hawkins point that he was making on the discussion board that I was coming to he he points out that we've made this decision, but then you know there's there's a risk to that, right? The more we explain, the more we show back scenes, sta- you know, backstage scenes in Angband, the more we run the risk of undermining the bad guys, right? Making them not only less scary but comical, even especially when they're failing. And that's a major concern in this season, in particular, right? Because. Yep. Almost nothing that they do is going to there's the the th- the most effective thing that the bad guys do in this season is going to be the catch and release program. Right. But it, even that's not going to bear immediate fruit. Right. Um, it's going to be it, we're going to see that it's effective, but effective towards what? Right. How the full impact of that, the the way the the kind of effect that that's going to have on Elvish culture, on the undermining of Elvish culture and the. Um, uh, the 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 sort of descent into the kind of chaos that we will get towards the end, you know, in Beleriand before, uh, um, uh, before the final uh, War of Wrath is certainly not going to be obvious in season four. Um, so 
I, I, I totally agree with Hakan's perspective there. The couple things that I would, um, the couple things that I would point out here, um, is, um, that, yeah, and Mario, you're exactly right. To me, one of the, um, uh, one of the, the Harry Potter books and films are to me classic examples of this. The more we see Voldemort and the Death Eaters, uh, the less scary they get until, until Voldemort becomes, I don't want to say he becomes comical, but he is not scary in the Deathly Hallows. No. He, he becomes... No, by the end, he's not scary at all. Yeah, yeah. And I, 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 I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that to Sauron. I sure don't want to do that to Morgoth. Um, so... It is a that that is a, if we can d- take a moment. Yeah. That is an interesting, bizarre transition from the from the sixth book, where yes. where where there's this kind of mystique, um, yes. uh, you know, where where like learning more about his background actually makes him kind of more sinister and scary. Yes. But by the end of the seventh book, he's like he's really not that scary. And I think I think in Her- in the context of Harry Potter, I think that that actually works. I think she's right. going for that. Right, but that, right. that in some sense that is like what Harry's journey is to learn that like ah oh, he's right. just a dude and you exactly. know like the ultimate... by, yes by the time that doesn't Harry work gets here to though. the end of book seven he, it's it's almost like the end of the film Labyrinth right I mean the end yeah. of book seven is almost like a you have no power over me moment right with Harry yeah, and yeah, Voldemort yeah. Um, and so yeah, I agree yeah. that's a totally different plot direction right and that's yeah. that's a totally okay way to handle your villains and and it tells an interesting story on its own. Yeah. Um, works there, but definitely wouldn't work here. Yeah, definitely would not work here. We cannot, Morgoth cannot, you know, Morgoth is Satan for crying out. I mean, yeah, he yeah, is yeah. the demiurge of evil in the universe, right? So we can't do that with him at the all. The more time he spends, the more time he spends on screen failing, the more he, the less he seems like Satan and the more he seems like Michael Scott from The Office. <laughs> Right, right, exactly, exactly. And as, to, as, as as Tony says, Voldemort is a human who thinks he is a god and is proved wrong. Morgoth is actually a god, right? So yes, that's totally right. different. Totally different. Um, so anyway, um, this is something we need to think of. So there are a couple things that I think that we can do here in order to not go too far. Make sure that we're not crossing these lines, right? One is, although I think it's still very fruitful for us to think about the bad guy plot lines as we've been doing, you know, as we've been thinking about, we, we're doing a lot of thinking about what's going on behind the scenes, especially things like the rivalry between Gothmog and, and Sauron and all that stuff. I think we should be careful about directly depicting it too often. I think that, in fact, it might be kind of interesting to deliberately pull back from that, from the actual depiction on screen of the bad guys, especially within Angband, and especially Morgoth. Um, remember how we were talking about wanting to be able to show him changing, right? And how he's his power is decreasing because he's dispersing it more and more around him. You know, if we see him on screen less often, that's easier to do, right? To introduce change so that the next time we see him, and it's been a while since we've seen him, he's different, right? Vis- even, even visibly different. Um, so... Uh, yeah, and Ellen, I agree. One of the things is one of the ways in which to contextualize the apparent failure, like we show the bad guys failing all the time in this season. You're right. 
the reaction of the bad guys, especially of Morgoth, to the failures has a huge impact on that. If we show them being frustrated, right? I mean, if if we let Morgoth and Sauron become, you know, Bond villains who are like, oh, foiled again. I'll get you next time. You know, like, that's horrible. Horrible, right? We can't let them become, like, frustrated, impotent bad guys. Um, uh, if it weren't for you meddling kids, exactly. Um, uh, so, yeah, so if the attitude is different, and I like Ellen's suggestion of confidence. Like, Morgoth sees all, like, he knows. He knows. There is no way these elves can stand up to him, right? Um, and in part, I would think that Morgoth would be, like, enjoying toying with them. Um, so they win briefly for a time, and the Dakar Aglareb, okay, right? Um, that will make his inevitable crushing of them more satisfying, right? He he has the master plan that, or at least, again, we don't have to even know what it is. Right? We shouldn't be told what it is, right? We should just be reminded occasionally that the bad guys are not worried. The bad guys are not frustrated, right? Things are going according to plan. We don't know what the plan is, but things are going according to plan, right? Or like they, they have a plan in which they are confident Morgoth knows he can crush them, right? Um, that's, um, that's, that's easy. Um, now, Nick, I agree. There isn't any way that the Dagor Aglareb doesn't look like a, ma- a bad move from the outset. But again, that's the, that's where the tension comes in, right? Because Fingolfin looks a hundred percent justified in saying, look at that. See, uh-huh. That's what I'm talking about, right? Bring it on, Morgoth. That was pitiful. Try again. You'll fail again, Right. Absolutely. It looks horrible from the bad guy, you know, to like from what we would imagine would be the bad guy point of view. So then imagine Morgoth reacting to this and just smiling a really creepy smile. Right. That's it. That's Morgoth's reaction to the news. I love that suggestion. (laughs) Then the viewers are like, "Okay, I don't know exactly now how to interpret the the Dagor Aglareb from Morgoth's point of view, but. He doesn't look like it. That went wrong, right? Something is, you know, it's it's super ominous, right? Um, yeah. So I, I I don't think we should show them interacting that much. Now, again, the difference here is here's what I would suggest. The different, although I I I I I think we should do fewer, and in this season, maybe maybe none at all, like villain backstage boardroom meetings, right? I don't think we need to have the council. I don't think we should depict the council of like Gothmog, Sauron, uh, you know, and Morgoth all getting together around a table and being like, should we invite Glaurung? No, I don't think so. Uh, you know, Tavildo, get out. Um, let's figure out the strategy. Would you two stop fighting? Like, we don't have them talking about it, right? The difference, the thing that I think we should continue to depict, we should stay focused on why we started going backstage with the bad guys in the first place. And that is the characters. We want to show Morgoth's progress, Sauron's progress, right? We want to show Sauron's fall. So I'm still fine with showing fewer, but still occasional shots of Morgoth and what he's up to and what, and, and, and what he's doing or just how he's responding, right? With showing more of Sauron and Sauron's actions. So showing, like having some Sauron and Thorin Gwethel scenes where Sauron is talking about his... Uh, his catch and release program, 
Sauron having, you know, a, a, one of the captured elves, like having, uh, you know, an isle, for instance, um, to, you know, to show Sauron kind of putting the whammy on an isle. Like, yeah, I'm totally fine with showing that. And even having Sauron talking with his minions, right, with his captains, like Thorin Gwethel, number one. Uh, and then with, uh, you know, w- with the others as well, like Tavildo and Dragluin, uh also. Um, but I- I'm fine with that because as long as the focus is on him and his character, we don't have to reveal. We should still think about, but we don't have to reveal what's actually going on behind the scenes. So the Dagor Aglareb, I still think that's Gothmog's idea, right? Uh, it was premature. It was not good. But Morgoth is fine with it. He doesn't care, right? Um, he He's playing the long game. And he will see that it's going to make them overconfident, right? Um, to him, I mean, again, like, he's so confident anything that happens is sort of a win-win situation from Morgoth's point of view, right? So would he have done it that way had he been around? No. You know, Gothmog kind of blew it there. Um, but Morgoth doesn't care, right? It's all going to pan out. And we don't have to know. We don't have to show the viewers that this was Gothmog's idea and Sauron isn't behind it. Right. Let them figure that out. Let them speculate about that. Um, Their rivalry, even we can give we can tease it in some ways. We can give some hints in Sauron's dialogue. Right. But we don't have to show it on stage. Um, Yeah. Uh, So anyway, um, that's. I think a really important reminder, I really appreciate Hakam's post on this. I think it's a really important reminder uh, that um, just because we're thinking through what the bad guys are up to doesn't mean we're showing it on screen. And I think that we need to be cautious about showing it on screen and bringing the bad guys down too much um, and making them uh, look silly. Um. So, okay, so no, yes, <laughs> Nick and Hakan and Ellen are all wanting to make sure we don't forget to talk about the spell of bottomless dread. Yes, okay, uh, I admit this is a problem. So, okay, so let me um, sum up the problem for everybody. I was saying last time, I was advocating for, I'm going back to our Gantt chart now. I was advocating, let's go down to the bad guys here. Yeah, where was that? Here it is, the villains. Right, okay. <clears throat> I was suggesting this. Let's um, let's have Morgoth away almost the whole season, right? Let's, get, let's have him go. Uh, uh, he's hanging out in Hildorian, right? He's doing his thing. We don't really know what's happening there, but he's not present. Um, but the problem is we want the captive elves to be placed under the spell of bottomless dread. And that's a Morgoth thing. Sauron alone can't do the spell of bottomless dread, or at least again, certainly not like Morgoth can do it. Um, So if any of the, uh, and, and so we had been talking about elves being under the influence of the spell of bottomless dread acting before the Dagor Aglareb. Right. Remember, we had the whole traitor plot, right? The the unwilling, uh, you know, ensorcelled traitor who is under the spell of bottomless dread and, and not acting uh, on her own volition. Um, uh, so it, we 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 um, um, we had that plot line uh, projected. 
And then I'm like, I want Morgoth to be away the whole time. And so people were pointing out, yeah, that doesn't work, right? If he needs to be around, put the, you know, the full spell of Bottomless Dread whammy on folks, he can't be in Hildorian for the entire season. Um, yes, yes. Um, so I think... Not depicting the backstage of the bad guys very much can make this easier for us, I think. Um, we're not going to publish Morgoth's itinerary, right? <clears throat> we don't even... His absence, where he is, and what he's doing is not even something we're going to show, right? We're just going we're gonna to hint at it in order to give dark, ominous hints of this other project that he's working on. And I see that, by the way, um, his... I, the, 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 we will hear from Sauron that Morgoth is away because he's doing something. There is some super important thing that's going on elsewhere and that he's hatching up, right? And to me, that's a big part of that missing plotline trajectory I was talking about. Right. That dread about what's happening and the idea of the, you know, the conception of the siege and everything. Right. This and the Turgon's prediction, if it is Turgon, that something worse is happening, that a day of doom is approaching and and it's or multiple days of doom are approaching. And uh, and Morgoth is not going to be held in leaguer forever. And he's cooking something up. Right. And then we tease the fact through Sauron that he's away and he's doing something. He's off cooking something up and we don't know what it is, right? Now, of course, what it really is turns out to be something which is going to have an impact later on, right? Um, what he's off cooking up ultimately is going to be the final defeat of the elves at the near Nyth Arnoidiad is what he's cooking up, right? Um, uh, that's where, that, that is where Morgoth's actions backstage in season four are going to bear fruit, um, when, uh, you know, when, when, when Ulfang comes into Beleriand, um, and of course the issues that the, uh, that even the Adain have. Um, so, so anyway, um, I kind of like that, you know, and, and, and there it's, it's kind of misleading, misleading. And I think a really good way. Um, when Glaurung comes, so then like they're waiting for something, right? Like through the whole season, there is one sense in which everyone's waiting for, for it to drop, right? Something is happening. Something is coming. It's going to be really bad. It's going to be different and it's going to be really bad. And then bam, Glaurung, episode 13. Everyone's like, oh, this is it. Except it's not it. Not only is it not it, that's not even like him at full strength, right? So it'll look like it in episode 13. And Fingolfin is certainly going to think that was it, right? But of course, uh, we can give reason to, to, yeah, that wasn't it, right? And there's even more because even more is, and that's one of the things um, that if we're thinking about the Beleriand big picture here, right? The big picture over the next, I don't know how many, seven, eight seasons or whatever, however long it's going to take us to get to the War of Wrath. The uh, the Elvish point of view is going to be wave after wave, right? Each wave stronger, each wave coming up further as the elves get beaten back, and 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 eventually Beleriand is going to be almost completely swamped by evil. 
there's always another plan, right? There's always another thing. There's always, it's never, when, just when you think that Morgoth has unleashed his full power, you find that he's got something else, right? That that wasn't even it. So we begin setting that up in this season. Um, yeah, yeah. So Ellen, I agree. Through the Adain in season five, we'll get lots of opportunities to again be teasing what Morgoth was up to, right? Um, attentive viewers should be able to sort of, even attempted, attentive viewers who don't know the Silmarillion should be able to piece out by the end of season five that it was men, right? It was the awakening of the second children that Morgoth was attending to, right, in season four. Um, but to what end? And what was the effect? You know, what are the long-term effects of that that we won't show in season five? Right, because even when we get to the Dagor Bragalock, it's not going to be revealed. He's not using men yet, right? Um, so that when Ulfang and the others come over, there's going to be, you know, then there's there's opportunities. Anyway, so Morgoth can come back for visits. <laughs> I mean, I know that sounds silly, but I think we can have him there. Um, we could even have him have a scene of him placing the spell of bottomless dread on the elves, right? Have Sauron bring one of his captives, el- captive elves into the presence of Morgoth, right? Um, we could even have at the end of that scene, Morgoth leaving, right? And we, we can tell he's off to do something somewhere and we don't know what, right? Um, and again, certain amount of dread associated with that. Um, so yeah, I think just having Nick, that, wants, um, Nick wants to know what color his buddy his bunny sled is. He's a god. He can travel fast. I'm not worried about. Besides, which we don't even know the distances he's traveling. Right? He's just going away, and then he came back, and it's episodes later. Who knows how many years that's been? Right? He could walk. He has time to walk to Hildorian and back with the time that's passing between episodes in this season. Right? So, and yeah, I think the the. The trick is the 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 reason that it, the reason that Game of Thrones is so bad is because someone is in one place in one episode, and then they're in the on the other side of the world in the next episode, and they're and human. the time that's conveyed is a short amount of time. Yes, and they're human. <laughs> and yes. they're humans. Yes, exactly. Without, think, uh, yeah, yeah, because we're yeah. not going to be showing Morgoth. Nope. You're not going to be revealing what he's doing with men. Nope. He's just going to show up here. Nor do we know where the men are or like where he's gone. We we, we don't even know. We we will give no, we're we're giving very little concept of the exact quantity of time that's passing between episodes, though we will be reminding people that time is passing. Right. And we're going to give absolutely no hint about the distance that he's traveling. I I think this and I think this will make the um the spell of bottomless dread scene more impactful if if there's sort of this implication that um you know Morgoth's off taking care of important business but he came back to do he came this. Came back for this. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Um yeah. 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 No, agreed. Agreed. Um yeah. Yeah, no. So it's 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 fine. Like I agree. And and especially since not only do are we not conveying the distance to where he's going. We're not even showing him arriving. Right? You know, Dave, exactly as you say, uh, uh, it's, it's as far as you can get from these human people are in one place in one episode and they're in another place and, you know, very quickly in the next episode. We're not even going to show him in the other place. We're just say he's gone. <laughs> and we show them on a ship in between. Right. So. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, 
So, I mean, I think that we could get away with depicting Morgoth three times, maybe, in this season. Once at the beginning to show him reacting to the sun and sending forth the clouds and everything. Once in the middle to show him coming back and setting up the spell of bottomless dread. And then once at the end um, to show that even though things look like to do that whole like sinister smile thing when he sees what's happening. And, and, you know, so that just when it looks like everything's going really well for the good guys, we leave our audience with the uh, horrifying sinking sense that he's uh, um, that he's um, satisfied with how things are going. Right. Uh, yeah. And Ellen, he absolutely could be around episodes 10 through 13. It doesn't mean we have to show him is all I'm saying. Right. We don't have to depict him. In fact, again, I think we should we should uh, attempt actively to minimize how we depict him. We need to depict him often enough so that we can show his character changing. But remember, one of the consequences of the path that Morgoth has chosen is that he changes less. He is stagnating, right? He is petering out as a character. He is losing his personality. He is losing himself. That's one of the things that it means to fall, right? So um, so even that, like he's... He doesn't have to be a super dynamic character over the next few seasons. That's one of the, again, I think it's one of the things that we do. He's going to become more and more, in a sense, like a broken record, right? Um, but um, anyway, yeah, so that's fine. We can, uh, uh, but we don't have to show him that much. So we, we can, sure, he can be wherever we want him to be. Um, I just don't, I, you know, but I do think it's worth it to convey at several points in the timing. Again, Morgoth's itinerary should be completely uncertain. In fact, look, there's a way that we can pay off Morgoth's itinerary being uncertain, right? We don't know if he's there commanding the battle in the Dagor Aglareb. Somebody, you know, Fingen or somebody can be wondering, like, is, is Morgoth going to show up? Right? Is Melkor? I said, the orcs are coming and they're fighting off the orcs. And Fingolfin is like, this is easy, right? Oh, I'm loving this battle, right? We are totally controlling this. And somebody can be like, Morgoth's going to come, right? Is Morgoth going to come? Is Morgoth going to fight us? And Mithros will be like, yeah, is Morgoth? I, I think Mithros needs to be there. Uh, I, I, at least I want Morgoth. I, if there's action, if there's military action, I want Mithros there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, I feel like that's going to be important. But anyway, whatever. Um uh, they should be dreading like Morgoth himself marching into the battle and he doesn't march into the battle. Maybe we know he's not there. They don't know he's not there. Maybe the viewers aren't sure whether or not he's back or not. Right. Because they will have seen him earlier on in the, with the spell of bottomless dread thing, but they've heard he's not there. Is he there or not? Who knows? Is he going to show up or not? And then he doesn't show up. Right. So it's like, Oh, okay. But again, if we if we leave our viewers kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop, I get that's good. That's what we're sort of yeah. building. That's what half of the elves are thinking. That's what Turgon is thinking. That's what Finrod is thinking. That's what Fingen is even thinking. Right? Okay, this is um this is not played out yet. This is not um this is not how this is really you know, we're not seeing the full force. Um and of course, especially with the anticipation of Morgoth's approach, remember that we can begin to set up Fingolfin's duel. At this point, right? Um, Fingolfin hoping that he comes so that they can fight him, right? And he doesn't. And Fingolfin 
can, you know, call him Craven. Um, this is what Fingolfin is going to be throwing in his face when he comes and knocks on the gates later on. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So, um, so that's, um, I think, I, I think it's fine. I, we, we solve so many problems just by not showing them on screen. I think that this should be a, a really important Hakan again, I'm really grateful for you bringing this up. It was uh, an important reminder for us to think through this general issue. And again, so many problems related to what's going on among the bad guys. Um, and how do we show this? I think the answer to, to a lot of those questions can be, don't, don't show it, right? Don't show it. Um, but I, again, I don't want to lose track of the characters. I don't want to lose track of Morgoth's character entirely. And especially I don't want to lose track of Sauron's character. Um, because I think that that's going to be important. All right. Um, all this said, let's now go on to episode one, uh, which I love what you guys have done here. So we have the main plot and then we have some subplots. But let's, let's start with the main plot. The main plot, of course, is Fingon rescuing Mithros here in episode one. So we have Fingon is living in the camp of Fingolfin on the northern end of Lake Mithrim. He learns that Feanor is dead and Mithros is captive in Angband. Fingon is frustrated by the division of the Noldor, right? So we're going to have a lot of, uh, you know, mutterings and stuff among the Noldor here. Morgoth makes a cloud of smoke to hide Angband from the sun. Yup, yup. Seeing his opportunity, Fingon makes up his mind to rescue Mithros. Good, I love that. Uh, the the enemy's own darkness shall be, uh, you know, will will we'll work to our advantage, right? The anticipation of uh, of the action in uh, you know book four and five of uh, the Lord of the Rings is excellent. There, right? Um, sometimes that uh, that pall of shadow that you cast over the land can backfire against you, right? Um, kind of fun to tease that here uh, at the very beginning. Um, so. Uh, um, so yeah, Ellen, I agree. Fingon's actions are part of that larger plot of intra-Noldor relations. We do need to understand that. Fingon is, of course, a big part of what Fingon is doing is rescuing his friend. And I want to make sure we've built on, we've, we've been building towards that, right? We've shown Fingon and Mithros' friendship in the past and the remembrance of that friendship. There needs to be something like a struggle here. Fingon was defending Mithros. Remember, even like at the, like, you know, when they were abandoned, it was Fingon who was still speaking up to say, you know, maybe there's a, a perfectly reasonable explanation here. He was the last one to want to condemn the Fanorians, but he's going to be struggling, right? Um, but he wins the struggle in the end, the struggle against division, the struggle against resentment and hatred and unforgiveness. And, and he sets out, but he's motivated by helping his friends. We want to, we want to keep that, but we also want to see him as he's also accomplishing a political end here as well, right? Um, he's trying to heal the breach between their peoples, but we can't make it just a calculated thing, right? I mean, it's, it, we've, we've got to, we've got to balance both of those things in our depiction of Fingon. And I think it's going to be super important. Okay. Uh, Fingon and Thangarodrim, uh, right? The impossibility of the task, um, his searching the mountains for a secret entrance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and again, I love the parallels that we can establish here, right? It's like uh, when Bilbo and the dwarves are searching for the way into the Lonely Mountain, we should be remembering this scene. Remember that like all of those times that Tolkien uses repetition of things, usually in diminishing scale. Um, that's a major 
uh, 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 it's not even a theme. Uh, it's a major technique of Tolkien's, right? To sort of come back to the same dynamics again and again and show how uh, the same thing keeps happening. It's it's a it's 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 a, it's a really powerful part of Tolkien's storytelling, I think. So we need to be thinking about that. We we need to be anticipating that. We've we've been doing this at some points before, putting in visual scenes that are we're, that we're going to pay off later on, right? Um, and of course, absolutely, Phil, the parallel with Sam and the Tower at, at Kirathongol as well. Not to mention just Frodo and Sam trying to get into Mordor, right? Uh, Frodo and Sam at the at the Black Gate. I mean, I think we should have a scene where Fingon is and looking at the gates like Frodo and Sam are looking at the black gate, right? Uh, and saying it's hopeless, right? Anyway, yeah, lo- lots of, um, uh, lots of things, lots of things like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, yeah. And then of course, some of the scenes we're going to, we, we are very detailed parallels and certainly, uh, Marie, as you're recalling here, the, um, the anti- the way in which Fingon playing his harp in Mithros, the the direct echo of that in the Tower of Kirathungol with Sam and Frodo is obviously something that we're going to be very deliberately setting up to pay off later on. It is also, of course, you will recall, uh, anticipating the rescue of Baron by Luthien um, uh, much more, much sooner, right down the road. So establishing that parallel is another thing that we need to be that we need to be thinking of. Um, Anyway, okay, so Fingon giving up and sitting down and playing his harp. Yep, absolutely. Uh, Mithras begging Fingon to shoot him. Thorondor's arrival. Um, now here we need to be... Let's pause for a second here. How do we want to do the arrival of the eagle? This is our first eagle. Our first eagle intervention, right? Uh, this is the first time that the eagles fly in from the west to save the day. As you know, not for the last time, right? Uh, uh, are the eagles going to be coming in? How do we, how do we do it? Push how... that button on the console game controller. And... <laughs> the you catastrophe button. I love yeah. that. I love it's my favorite thing about the war <laughs> in the North video game is that there's a you catastrophe button. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, does it undermine the catastrophe concept just a smidge? Yeah, it does. But, you know, I, there's still I, I have a hard time not loving it. Anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, so so what's your when, when you ask how should we do this, what what's kind of. What do you what, what's what's underlying that question? Are you thinking visually? What does it look like? Or yes, visually was or is what, it what does it look like? Okay, visual. And but but not only that. So major difference between ego intervention number one and many of the future ego interventions, like most notably the very famous Hobbit ego intervention, is the the eagles in the Hobbit when they intervene. Um, certainly at the battle of five armies don't stop for conversation. Right. Um, right. The intervention of Thorondor is you catastrophic in this moment, but it's a very different kind of you catastrophe. Thorondor comes in dramatically from the West and then chats with Fingon. Right. 
how do we do that? How do right. we have Throndor come winging in land and be like, hey, sup, need help or something? <laughs> right? I mean, in a sense, yeah. in this way, the eagle, uh, the eagle intervention is much less dramatic here. They're not going to come in and, you know, Throndor's not going to come in and sweep the enemies off the hillside, right? They're not even going to come in and pick up Gandalf and go rushing off with him to Mount Doom, right? Um, it's not, you know, they're, they're, it's, it's, it's not picking up Gandalf and freeing him from Orthanc, right? It's, now again, right. conversation happens. Gandalf talks to the eagles when they rescue him from the burning trees. Gandalf talks to Throndor when he rescues him from Orthanc. I'm not saying that conversation is unprecedented or, or even a problem exactly, but they've never just come in and stopped ever. Like we never see them doing that. They're always picking things up and swooping. Right. Um, so f to have him come in and kind of land and be like, so uh, what do you, would you want me to put, I don't know. Like, so, one option, avoid conversation or minimize it, right? Have him come or, in and rescue. Just do it in this just do it in the style of, of what we've seen in mm -hmm. other things. Mm -hmm. Have him swoop in and defer conversation till later. On the one hand, I would um, so one one you know idea I just had was what if he comes in like he's trying to rescue Fingen, right? Like I'm taking you away from here and Fingen's like, actually no, I was going in, not coming out. Um uh, instead, could you so like they talk while they're in the air, right? Well, he's picked up Fingen and he's in the air, and he's like, actually, could you? What would be super helpful, uh, you know, Mister the Eagle, sir, is to take me over here, right, and put me down by. But see, I don't like that because that would assume that like what Thorondor hadn't noticed Mythros hanging from his from no, the cliffside, yeah. right? I, I mean, don't think that, that works. That, that can't happen. I've been, I've been, that's also going to really fuel the why didn't the Eagles take the ring to Mordor? thing all over again because right. it's like we'll have demonstrated that you know they can be requested to do things and we'll right. um how about how about something like this this is i'm just thinking out loud <clears throat> what if what if we sort of do it kind of uh, portray it as as portray thoranders arrival as sort of like an answer to a prayer mm -hmm. so for starters maybe Which we have finger yeah. sort of sort of talking kind of, you know, maybe not necessarily praying, but kind of asking for help. He's despondent. And then instead of showing the eagle flying in, what if it's kind of a surprise, like, you know, Throndor's just suddenly there behind him or he or, suddenly notices him behind him and starts talking to him. And or if he just gets like, grabbed. Oh, <laughs> if he yeah. just gets grabbed. And we don't, yeah, and, and they're like, oh, okay, it's a friendly, right? Uh, you know, that's uh, conceivably. Yeah. yeah, but I'm I'm thinking I'm thinking maybe and like some an element of surprise for both Fingen and the viewers, uh, and yeah. so that there's kind of a mystery as opposed to just like, well, here comes an eagle flying out of the west in the yeah like, because yeah I, th that is true. One thing we have to fight against is the viewer saying like, oh God, here we go again, Tolkien and his right. eagles. Here we go with the eagles. So yeah, if, yeah. if there's a way yeah. to make it different, yeah. so that we don't get that that reaction, that'd be nice. Right. So here's the other thing, or there's several other things. <laughs> thing number one, Thorondor. We want to introduce Thorondor as a character at some point, right? He's going to be a True. running character here. Yeah. So there's kind of, to me, two conflicting things, right? I, you're absolutely mm -hmm. right, Dave, to recall that 
it, this is an answer to pr- to prayer, right? Fingon prays yeah. to my to Manway. I almost said to Mythros. Yeah. No, he about Mythros to Manway, <laughs> and yeah. Manway answers yeah. the prayer by sending uh, uh, Thorondor, right? Mm-hmm. I think we should show that, but but we've got to be really careful. If we say one way to handle the awkwardness of like him swooping in and them having a conversation would be to eliminate the conversation, right? Just to show the eagle picking him up and landing him up on the ledge from which Morgoth was taunting Mithros when he was nailed to the cliff in the first place, right? Um, we could do that. I gotta lie. Go ahead. That feels a lot like the catastrophe button. It does. And what's worse, it makes Thorondor a, an, a, an instrument, a tool, mm-hmm. right? Like, he's he is the answer to prayer. Like, he's the lackey that is sent off. You know, he's he is merely... You know, it, it it does the opposite of introducing Thorondor as a character, right? It makes yeah. him only a device. Uh, I, I kind of have a picture of Manway and Thorondor, you know, sitting around having beers, and uh, uh, you know, the the herald comes in with a note, and he turns to the eagle and says, "Hey, I I have a request. Uh, they really could use you. Do you think is could you make is that okay with you? Would you be willing to do that? Yeah, okay." <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> Thrunder's like, eh, you know, I, I don't really have anything else on today. So yeah, I don't have anything going. I'll go take it. I kind of got this thing. <laughs> right. But I can be back in time. No, 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 it's good. Yeah, I, 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 mean, I can squeeze I mean, it. In. I'm being funny. But right. the difference there is that's Manway making a request of Thrundor, not ordering right. him. So he's not a tool. You know, he's not oh. being sent. He's being, it's a, it's a request. Yeah. I mean, that's or why. He is being sent, but yeah, he's, he's signed up for it. Yeah. This is why I kind of like – I like the – I kind of like like the picture I have in my mind is, is Fingen sort of uttering a prayer of some kind, and then Throndor starts talking to him over his shoulder. And, and, it having, and having it be less – like don't make it immediately obvious why Throndor's there or what he's there to do, as it would be if he swooped in and picked him up. But have like a conversation or even a negotiation where like Throndor's not like – doesn't come in and say, "Hello, I'm here to answer your prayer." But yeah, what's says, up? You know, Yo, what's up? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what's yeah. going oh, on? Like, hey, uh, so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm the handy answer to prayer here. I'm gonna, and also, yep. I mean, his role <laughs> is comparatively small. Thorondor's role. I, I mean, of all yeah. of the eucatastric interventions, this is actually the least. I mean, it's very dramatic in the sense of he's got his arrow drawn or his bow is drawn the arrow fit into the string and he's looking he's about to kill his friend and he sends up a prayer and then wow he shows up in the nick of time right so it's very dramatic in that sense but what he actually does i'm gonna boost you from here up to here thank you you're welcome small service no charge (laughs) right like i mean that's it it, it, again it could really backfire if we have this like huge portentous like i have come to assist you in your oh all you need is a is a boost up about 50 feet okay like uh yeah right anything else i can do that's, for you while i'm here i mean you know it's a and he does why maybe safe well and again well, you know there's but, kind of a deus ex machina thing to it you know because we haven't really done anything with eagles up until now right i mean there's not but, but i'm not saying we should i'm just yeah by well, the way i'm wondering I, if I'm wondering if the drama should be actually in a character moment, like a, a discussion or a conversation. Yeah. So here's here's another issue I would like to point out that I like. Notice the symmetry. I love the symmetry. Episode one: sudden, unexpected appearance of this uh, new sentient beast creature, right? Which is Thorondor the mm-hmm. Eagle. Episode thirteen: sudden. 
uh, unexpected oh, appearance of sentient beast creature, which is Glaurung, right? So I really kind of yeah. like that as a frame. Yeah. You know, and so I, yeah. I, think I think it's cool. Um, anyhow, so, okay, so just one thing to point out there. Um, it is very nice. It is very nice, uh, but awkward in some ways, too. So Mario asks the excellent question. What does his presence establish? This is, I think, the, more than the logistics, because we can make the logistics work. The right, question yeah. has to be, what are we doing? Like, what is the take home from the intervention of Thorondor? And in the text, it seems to me that the take home is exactly as Mario goes on to answer her question. The Valar have not abandoned the Noldor or Middle Earth. That's the take home, right? He prays and his prayer is answered. And under the circumstances, meaning who he is, where he is, and it's a big deal, right? The Valar are intervening to or are are intervening in Middle Earth. They have they've they've hidden Valinor, but they're not staying, right? They're paying attention still to what's happening in Middle Earth. Big deal for that reason. These are the Noldor we're talking about, who have been exiled and cursed, right? And and we're helping them. That's that's a, that's an even bigger deal. It's Mithros. It's one of the Feanorians whose life is being rescued, right? In answer to this prayer, that's an even bigger deal, right? So so yeah, to me that is the main storyline there, and. This is the first example, it will not be the last, of somebody invoking the Valar and crying out to them and being heard, right? So the fact that the Valar are paying attention, um, yeah. do we want... Actually, that's really a good point. Do we want a Tenequitil scene here? Do we, do we, do we, do we, do we want to show... I w- I've been thinking that. I mean, I've been thinking how not to do it schlockily. Yeah. I mean, I'm, 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 I need to be convinced. I, I, yeah, I, I feel the same way about the the Valar at this point in our story as I do about the villains. That the more yeah. behind the stuff we do, the well, less but, mysterious it seems. Yeah, don't we kind of want to somehow convey the fact that the Valar are paying attention, even though we don't want to make it like a, a central thing? I, I, I think I think that can be conveyed in precisely the way that it's conveyed in the book, right? Which is the, it's sort of obvious. We know that Manway is associated with eagles. The eagles yes. arrive and help. Yes. Yes. Uh, um, yes. Yeah. Exactly. So somebody the, could say it. There's no oh, way, an I mean, eagle of Manway. Yeah. Th- there's yeah. yeah, yeah uh, good. That Actually, true. that phrase could be dropped by somebody at some point. Yeah. Right. Um, um, especially when they when they arrive back at the camp. In some ways, that's the really dramatic, and that's that's got to be the final scene, right? The final image of of uh, like the, the, that's that's got to be the closing scene of episode one, right? The Noldor in the camp seeing an eagle coming from the east, right? And like this massive eagle of Manway descends in the camp, and he's bearing Fingon and Mithros, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or like riding him is Fingon holding Mithros, right? Is I think what that should look like. But they don't see yep. that Throndor's ginormous, right? So they don't even see Fingon and Mithros at first. But like he lands and they're like, what is this? Is this like a judgment? Is this, are, are we in trouble, <laughs> right? Is this, this is, is, you know, what do we do here? And then, you know, uh, 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 Throndor like sort of bows down to the ground and then we see Fingon on his back holding Mithros, right? Um uh, so anyway, he's absolutely enormous. Now, one other thing we got to keep in mind, a uh, small logistical issue. Tolkien gave a couple different versions of where the eagles live, right? In the old story, mm-hmm. in the Book of Lost Tales story, the eagles actually lived in Thangorodrim, 
like in the peaks of Thangorodrum, um, kind of like spitting in Morgoth's eye, uh, living up on the inaccessible peaks of Thangorodrum. Later on, he decided against that, and he moved them to the Chrysagrim down around uh, the Chrysagrim. Let's say, it's, uh, sorry, it's one of those words that I still pronounce like I did when I was a kid and didn't know how to pronounce it properly. <laughs> I have I have a few blind spots in the Silmarillion when it comes to that. I have a super. I'm gonna say my uh, Maiguin's name wrong several times. I'm gonna say Maiguin because that's how I pronounced it for years. I apologize in advance. Anyway, um, he then moved them around the Chrysagrim around Gondolin, right? Uh, Tolkien did later on. Personally, I am very much in favor of the latter move. I think that having uh, having the eagles live in Thangorodrim is a bad idea, especially with the way we're trying to convey Morgoth here. Um, Tolkien had – when Tolkien did that, when Tolkien had the eagles living in Thangorodrim, that was when Mor- Melko was himself a, less of a big deal. I mean he was – there was comedy about Melko, right? He gets – like in the chaining of that that's in the same story where like the chaining of Melko happens when they hoodwink him right uh and uh and just kind of like trick him into into coming out and getting chained so um and we we are going to need them they will have a job Marie as you point out um in the in the Chrysagrim later on so that's 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 uh definitely going to be um something that we need to uh prepare as well we don't know where they live yet because we haven't seen them Turgon will see them, right? And Turgon will get to know them, and uh, uh, we'll be, we will associate them with Gondolin down the road. But maybe even by the end of the, we should show them certainly flying overhead, like the eagle currently flying above my head and and on your video screen, um, over Gondolin in episode thirteen, right? Um, but uh, anyway, okay. So 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 I, I I do think they should be, he should be coming in from a distance. The more I think about it, the less I like the idea. I mean. It's hard not to anticipate the eagles are coming moment, right? The the the, the sight of the eagle flying in from a distance. Um, but Dave, I am a little bit worried about exactly what you said, that if we show that, right? If we show an eagle flying in from the distance, our audience is going to be like, oh, no, we don't want anyone rolling their eyes when they see the eagles <laughs> coming in from a distance. Yeah. And without being too prescriptive about how exactly to do it, I, I think – I think my my sort of overall feeling increasingly is less will be more here. Mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm almost in like I, I'm even sort of imagining what if um, we show Fingen like praying for help and the next scene is uh, is them arriving back at camp on Thoranders back. So we don't even show his arrival at the cliff. I, I know that'll be controversial. I know That's I know our listeners who are. I know our listeners who are hoping for a scene by scene adaptation of the Silmarillion will rebel against That's some really change like that. Especially it's since worth considering. It is, especially since that avoids our having to have him chop his hand off on stage, right? And yep. and it could be much more vis- visually powerful. The audience is gonna know what must have happened, mm-hmm. right? They're gonna see Mythros chained, right, bracketed to you know, stapled to the cliffside. And then when they when we see him in in Fingen's arms with his hand cut off, right? That that will yeah. yeah yeah yeah. Well, and I was thinking I was thinking about your suggestion that that when the elves first see his shadow, and they're left wondering what's going on, has he been sent to punish us? Um, I'm thinking that's not that would if if we've just seen a scene where he flew over picked up um Fingen carried him up helped him rescue Mythros had a deep conversation like that scene is just going to be like 
pointless. Like, why bother showing the, you know, anytime you're in a situation where the audience knows what's going on and the characters don't, the, you know, like, whatever it is you're trying to convey in the characters' sort of emotions, like, fail, will fail. So I'm thinking, like, if we want the audience to feel that same sort of wonder and awe and kind of a little bit of terror and all that at the first appearance of Throndor, the only way to do that is that's the first time they, the audience sees him, too. So I'm kind of wondering. That's interesting. Maybe. That's interesting. If we so we have, we have the harping and singing scene, right? Yep. We have Mithros's despair. We have Mithros begging for death, right? And Fingen yep. pulling out his bow. We have Fingen uttering his prayer, right? Yep. Uttering his prayer while he's pulling back his bow, and then we cut it and leaving the cut audience it. to believe that he's just shot Mithros. Just shot his buddy. Right? And then we next show the eagle landing in the camp and Fingen holding Mithros in his arms with his hand cut off. You catastrophe. That's, that's, boy, that solves almost all the problems, doesn't it? You catastrophe off stage. That solves almost yeah. well, all I'm the thinking, problems. I'm thinking that moment where we see Fingen hop off with Mithros becomes you, you catastrophic for the, yes. the viewer yes. who, who yes. assumed he shot him. Who assumed he shot him. And of course, for the, for the Noldor, right then, you know, Fingen, the image of Fingen holding Mithros in his arms becomes like the visual symbol of the reconciliation of the Noldor, right? Um, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, this is, um, this is, uh, this is interesting. So, so uh, uh, Dave, you know, Marie's comments here are funny, right? Marie's very first reaction to your suggestion involved a lot of capital letters. I'm just going to say, right? Involved a uh-huh. lot of capital letters, and now she's saying I like a lot of it, despite my intense disappointment. <laughs> right? I, I, I hear that. I hear that. I, I, I you know, you, you guys can can see see what you think, right? We can't, Tony. We do have the opportunity of showing doing a quick flashback, right? Doing, having some flashback elements to the, you know, the flashing yep. of the sword and like the, the, you know, a, a, we can, we can get a, 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 a snapback visuals shot of Mithros or sorry, Fingen, like kneeling on the ledge where Morgoth was standing, taunting Mithros before and sort of reaching down, you know, reaching down and Mithros has continued despair. We can, we can capture that in like a, 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 like a five second glimpse, right? In flashback. Um, I, I I don't know. I think that could work. I don't know. Um, or even if we don't, I, in some ways. See, again, this is a really interesting example of how to utilize the opportunities we that, that the storytelling medium presents us in order to convey what we're wanting to convey, right? In the narrative style of the Silmarillion, Tolkien gives us just a couple sentences on this, right? The whole scene is over in a couple sentences. We get like two sentences describing Mithras' continued despair and then Fingen cutting his hand off, right? Um, and therefore, right? Um, uh, and therefore, you... Um, by only giving us a couple sentences, 
almost everything that all of us are invested in in that scene. Like, think of the think of all the things that you want to be able to show, right? Think of all the things that the reasons that this matters, what this, you know, what it means to Fingen, what it means to Mithros. Tolkien didn't say any of that, right? We imagined all that because all Tolkien told us was in two sentences what happened, right? That's how the Silmarillion works, and it's one of the things that makes the Silmarillion so rich as a storytelling enterprise. It's one of the things I think that Tolkien liked so much about this and why he shifted to the narrative style of the Silmarillion over the years when he, as I've, you know, as I've said before, as I've kind of said half jokingly, but only half jokingly, you know, when Tolkien started doing the plot summary of the events of the, you know, of the elder days in the 1928 sketch of the mythology, and he kind of fell in love with the plot summary genre, right? Um, Anyway, it's so the effect, the power of that scene has nothing to do with Tolkien's words, like the actual sentences. And it has everything to do with our being told what happened and left to imagine it ourselves. Having it happen off stage is in what is another way of trying to accomplish the same kind of thing through the visual medium, right? We risk, you always risk in the visual medium by showing too much, you reduce the impact because we've reduced that imaginative investment by the audience, right? By the reader. Um, mm-hmm. So I, um, I don't know. Like to me, there seems like a, there seems like a, a, just from a, a narrative point of view, from a narrative approach point of view, that seems to me kind of parallel. Now, the counter-argument against that is that we've not been using that narrative technique chiefly, right? Um, you know, we have... Uh, the, the, the film film thing from the beginning has been an adaptation of the Silmarillion story into a totally different narrative mode, one which is, um, you know, showing the characters and long-term character development and, and, and filling out more of the story rather than leaving so much of it uh, to um, to be um, to be uh, to be uh, you know imagined and 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 sort of filled in by the viewer. Um. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um. Anyway, I um. I can see arguments in both direction. Obviously, doing too much off screen is dangerous, right? Um, uh, yeah, Marie says this has been like the theme of, of today's session, right? Show less. In fact, let's just not show any of this at all, (laughs) right? It's true. That's kind of the direction we've been trending today, isn't it? I know. Um, and I can definitely see an argument. The thing that really attracts me, Dave, about your, your particular suggestion here is, It's not just that I really kind of like it as a storytelling device for this moment and this kind of moment. I think that it also solves a lot of problems. Um, Yes. I have a really hard time thinking how we can depict, thinking of the number of things we don't want to lose, right? We don't want to lose the answer to prayer thing. We don't want to lose the majesty of the eagles thing we, and and the 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 association between eagles and eucatastrophe we don't want to lose um 
you know, to to undermine uh, like sort of the drama of Fingen's accomplishment. And uh, but there's a risk of that. I think th- we, by depicting it, by showing the arrival of the eagle, by having a converse, depicting a conversation on screen between Fingen and the eagle, um, by showing the chopping off of the hand, even. Um, uh, I even think of the, there are a bunch of hand chopping moments that we might not want to recall, right? I don't want mm-hmm. it to look like Luke Skywalker, for instance, yep. right? Um, yep. I really don't. That's not a good Luke Skywalker moment, in my opinion. Um, I, I, anyway, I, it's... Um, well, let's, and, let's and I think... I think a thing to consider, you know, maybe one of the things that we're, we're that we're working through here is is kind of sorting out, um, uh, like like on a story uh, thing like this, is what we really care about the sort of iconic scene or moment, mm-hmm. or is what we really care about the character and the stories. And there's a tendency, um, there's a tendency, especially with something like the Silmarillion, which is told i think you know a couple levels removed from characters sometimes yes, to focus yes. on the iconic moments oh the hand chopping moment it's such an important moment but it's like is it really like if you think about it visually on screen is it really that great of a moment or is what's really interesting what comes afterward you know and the before and after before and yeah, after yeah. yes what yes. leads up to it and then and then what are the consequences of the rescue and yes um yes. all the all the stuff that we'll be able to do um, yes. Uh, with uh, all the stuff we'll be able to do with him learning to fight with the other hand, you know, that's again, that's an example of just there's a single line, it's a throwaway line. Ah, I learned to fight just as effectively with the other hand. Okay, whatever. I mean, that um, uh, Game of Thrones has gotten a lot of hay out of doing that with Jamie. Right. We could do something similar. You know, go in a different. Dire- it's obviously a different direction because Jamie's not as effective. Um, right. um, <clears throat> but but I think there's a lot that could be done, and I think. Those are the things we should, the, you know, instead of getting hung up on, like, trying to make sure every scene we want appears on screen exactly as is in the book, we should be thinking more about, like, what's going on underneath that's really important in the story. Exactly. I mean, what does what does the scene mean? And can we make yeah. sure we are conveying what that scene means? Um, yeah. That's more important than than, like that we actually depict the stuff. Yeah, no, I agree. And, um, um, so yeah, yeah, no, no, exactly. I think, I think that, 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 that says it really well. Um, and I totally agree. So by the way, I, I, Marie and Nick were talking about not wanting to lose the moment where Mithros is begging for death. No, absolutely. We totally do that. Like, in fact, that's the emotional peak i think this where he's begging for death and fingen is drawing his bow and 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 uttering a surprising honestly and desperate prayer to manway i mean fingen's praying to man one of the noldor already just finished you know being exiled and he's praying to manway that's kind of desperate and gutsy right and yeah. sort of shows yeah. where he is anyway so so yeah the begging for the, death the question the becomes shoot him. the question becomes how how do you how do we most effectively deliver relief from the tension of that moment, is yes. it by having an eagle swoop in off screen, or, or is it by doing something else? Right, and and here's the other thing. the The second moment of despair, right? 
It's not the hand chopping scene so much that I'm afraid of. I'm a little bit afraid yeah. of it, but not too afraid of it. The thing I'm more afraid of is having Fingen leaning down from the uh, from the ledge and being like, Neh, Neh, I'm trying yeah. to get the bracket <laughs> off, but I can't. And then Mithros being like, hooray, you're here to save me. Oh, oh, you know, I was just begging you for death. It's like, okay, no, wait, maybe oh, I should. Oh, wait, no, yeah. you can't get it. The staple stuck super hard. <laughs> so I guess you'll have to kill me anyway. Like that's, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, I'm 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 not saying that that scene couldn't be done well, and I know I'm I'm sort of making fun of it and exaggerating. But the point is, um, um, uh, the point is that we um we don't um in executed, watched in real time, it's not going to have the same poetry. That, I don't think that the so. Very short succinct passage in the book has. <laughs> and I think that we increase the effect of that by not showing it rather than decreasing it. Um, or at least yeah. not spending a whole lot of time on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, yes. Yeah. So I, there's, um, there's a lot there. And so Nick was just quoting the passage from the Silmarillion, which is of course evocative that it's the whole thing from even as Fingen bent his bow we have the whole thing is three sentences, three sentences, including one short sentence. But Fingen could not release the Hellrot bond upon his wrist, nor sever it, nor draw it from the stone. Again, we want to show all those things, right? <laughs> I'm trying to pull it out. No, I can't get it. Hang no. on. Let me try hacking at it. No, that doesn't work either. You know, do you, yep. what we really, no matter, need, if only we had better tools, man, well, I guess I'll just have to come no matter, yeah, no matter how, no matter how he tugged at it, he couldn't, re- he, you know, he wedged his sword under it and tried to pry at it like a crow. That didn't work either. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Hang on. Hang on. Let me go. Let me, let me fetch my tool belt and we'll try this again. I mean, again, I'm, I'm exaggerating. I'm make, but again, I, I, this is to me, that's the real fear. Um, and again, even you look at the way that Tolkien describes it, right? Fingen, Mythos has just been begging for death and Fingen is bending his bow, right? And then again, therefore, in his pain, Mythros begged that he would slay him. But Fingen cut off his hand above the wrist and Thorondor bore them back to Mithrin, right? That's what the Silmarillion says. Um, now, again, it's, it's powerful. Again, there's, there is much poetry in it, Nick, as you say. Um, but I don't think depicting in that would have as much again, like he's already begged for death. We're going to have him beg for death again. The second time again, I'm not saying it's impossible to do that. Well, I could imagine for instance, like a, I don't know, a, a stage play or something, which like does the story of Mithros or something where real work is done there and where it really means something. But I think it's, I think Dave's suggestion is really cool. Anyway. All right. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, uh, uh, I'm not going to insist we're going to, you know, we're, we're, we're going to leave how it's, you know, how it's done to the, to the script team and see, I'm just saying, I think Dave's suggestion is pretty awesome. And I think that would work. Um, what if all I'm, all I'm saying is less is more. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Less, I think in, in this case, I think is more, but we're not shying away from the scene. Um, yeah. Yeah. And we're okay. certainly not shying away from what's really important, which is the story. Yeah. And I, I, I don't, so Nick's worried that it's going to be anticlimactic. I don't think it's going to be anticlimactic at all. No. I think the emotional climax, the emotional height of the episode is that like, I'm going to shoot him and, and, and the audience believes that he shot him. Right. Um, and then 
the resolution is going to be not anticlimactic. Like seeing Fingon descend from the eagle holding Mithros in his arms, that's very climactic, right? It's not action, right? It's not a it's not an action sequence, but it is a I think can be a, an extremely um uh uh powerful resolution of that yep. whole sequence. Can we get can we get like an itty bitty foreshadowing of, of of the eagle with an eagle cry as it fades out. You know, he bends his bow. We're fading out as he bends his bow. You hear a wee. You know, whatever that noise yeah, is they make, sure, that eagle yeah. cry. Yeah, you know, I, we we, I mean, we have we can do sounds. You know, yeah. so yeah, yeah, um, yep. And then especially mark if, my words. Yeah. Mark my words. You guys, try to write out that scene, and then you read the finished product. You're gonna find that's an, it, that will read anticlimactic. Right. You're gonna you're gonna find like boy this really boy this scene's dragging too long. Let's see if we can shorten it. Let's shorten <laughs> it some more, and then you're gonna end up just shortening it right out. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I like that. I like that a lot. We'll definitely um, be cutting it. Most. A great question. Which camp do they land in? I think that that's okay. So here's um, this raises a really fascinating point the geography is challenging here right um there are good reasons geographically to have the camp of the Thanorians and the camp of the fingolfinians on opposite sides of lake mithrim right um because we want to keep them apart right um i agree with that i you know obviously i agree with that concept but if they're separated by like the camps, if the camps are separated by a hundred miles, it's going to be a problem. Here's what I want. Here's what I want. I want both of them. I want this to be a moment of reunion, right? I want somehow I want Thanorans and Fingolfin. I want them all there. I want Kurafin and, and Keligorm and Fingolfin and Finrod standing there when Fingolfin or when Finrod is carrying the unconscious body of Mithros. Like, that's what I want. How do we that's make that happen? I don't all. know. I don't know. But maybe they interrupt the council of the chiefs or something. I don't know. Maybe there's been some sort of council of the leaders. Yeah, they don't necessarily have to be, st- but it has to be witnessed by everybody. I do think it'll be anticlimactic if Finrod descends from the eagle in the middle of nowhere and has to hike carrying <laughs> Mithros in any direction. And I don't see a way out of a problem if the eagle lands in the middle of the camp, which, again, I think the eagle should, like, we should have the Noldor looking up and being like, um, is this bad? This this looks bad. Is this, are we in trouble? Is yeah. this, are we, are we being attacked? Wind. Here? Right. Yeah. Big I mean, wins. there should be. I mean, and, and again, Thorondor, I think, should be enormous. Um, mm-hmm. So he lands, and then, but then they see. No, this is a good thing, and we see the dramatic uh, descent of uh, Fingon with carrying Mithros, and the emotional reveal of Mithros's body, and the and the the sort of horrible, you know, uh, uh, suggestion of his mutilated and and. Uh, 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 you know, badly wrapped wrist. Um, Cause again, you know, his like field dressed uh, amputation wound. Right. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's hard to stop somebody bleeding to death, even if he's an elf, if you're on the side of a mountain, uh, you know, without proper medical facilities and you just cut his hand off. Uh, that's uh, uh, there's a reason that sort of yeah, thing is I, often fatal. I think, 
I think, you know, if you ask yourself what's really going on here, um, the two big things are the reconciliation mm-hmm. and the reveal that the Valar haven't yes. abandoned mm-hmm. the old war. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. So the question becomes, relationship what's the most of, yeah, it, like, Will this be anti, you know, like, I think if you handle that moment, Throndor's arrival to the Noldor properly, there's no way this is anticlimactic, because this is the big reveal. This is where everyone's like, oh, God, what's going on? And then it's, you know, the dawning realization, there's Fingen, there's Mithros, they rescued him, the eagles helped, the eagles are from Manway, Manway helped us. Yeah. Exactly. Hey, I, I would like yeah. to uh, I would like to kind of insert a little sidebar here, um, and I think it's just more of a reminder than something that we're not doing. But I just want to say this, and it made me think of it when we were talking about you know sh- shortening all the talk we've just been having about the scene yeah. and whatnot, yeah. and my saying the thing about the eagle is is let's not forget these are not stick figures we're dealing with, and everything doesn't have to be done, you know with dialogue and stuff. The scene that I think of is Martin Freeman as Bilbo Baggins in Bag End in the movie the morning after when he wakes up and the the dwarves have gone. And in that, I don't even know how long it was. <laughs> 30 right. seconds? He went through... Yes. I mean, you could write five pages right. Right. <laughs> of okay. what he went through yes. visually in that... Thir- and I do think... I think the Silmarillion is even more that kind of a work where we need to be very nuanced and incorporate the fact that the actors themselves are going to need to be showing us X, Y, Z. You know, it's not dialogue, but it's, you know, so-and-so conveys this (laughs) (laughs) so that the viewers understand, you know, that kind of thing. I just want to say that because I – especially the Silmarillion, I think, you know, I'd like us to keep that nuanced piece, and I think it's totally possible to do it. It's just – yeah. You know, and so we have sounds, we have face, you know, we have the actor's ability themselves to do yes. nonverbal communication. Yes. And I just think we need to remember that. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. And thank you, Trish, for like recalling to my memory one of the actual good scenes from the Hobbit films. That was, <laughs> yes. That, was, that's, that is delightful. Yeah. Well, that um, first movie is there are probably. Moments- and that's and, and and that's a yeah. great one. That would that would be on my yeah. top five list of actual good Absolutely. scenes uh, in the Hobbit films. But anyway, no, that's great. I agree. Um I, I, people are like Ellen and, and, and others are reminding me that, um, of course it's, it's Fingon's arrival with Mithros that brings about the reunion. We can't have them reunited, uh, uh, in the beginning or like before he, I, I, I agreed. Yeah, I know. That's why it's a challenge. Um, but that's exactly what I want you guys to solve for me because, uh, I, I wanted to, maybe they're antagonists, maybe what the, he, he descends in the middle of is like Kelicorm and Caranthir coming over and being like, so are you guys going to submit to us or what? You know, like we're the boss, yeah, exactly. right? Like, like we are the heirs of our father. Fight brewing. Are, are, yeah. I mean, you know, maybe I get fight brewing, maybe literally, maybe figuratively. I don't know. Um, and I just throwing out ideas, but you guys can figure that out. Um, I just want, I don't, because see the problem is yes, People are going to be able to see it from a distance because the eagle's huge, but the huger the eagle is, the tinier Fingon and Mithros are going to look. So it's going to be anticlimactic if we're seeing it from the distance from the camp and we see the eagle swooping down and he lands and then we see a, an ant-sized figure holding, we can't even tell who it is, right? We've got to have an up-close and personal there. Um, and and I, think it, I, think it would be, um, I think it would be best if people are, people are nearby. Right. People can come running. They don't have to be standing right there. Right. People can come running. But we've got to uh, uh, 
I, you know, I, there needs to be immediate reaction, I think, from both camps, essentially, uh, to the arrival of Fingon and Midoros. But um, anyway, okay. But like I said, y'all can solve this. I, 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 I believe in you. Um, uh, one way or another. Okay, so yeah, this is great. I think this works super well. We haven't saw. We notice how we also just dodged the eagle question, right? Like the developing Thrandor as a character, we can have him. He can have us if we want to have him have a speaking part in the conclusion. I think that'd be fine. Or we could not. We could save that. But I don't know, right? But we can, um, we can do that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, Ellen, I totally agree. They can't be living together. Yeah, no, 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 no. There's no way the Feanorians and the and the Fingolfinians are living together. I'm am sick of saying the rest of the Noldor. Um, uh, yeah, but they just need. They, I just want them present. I want them near enough to come running and all be there when Fingon is still standing there holding Mithros and not being like, okay, they're coming, but it's going to take ten minutes, so I'm just going to put him down for a minute, or I'm going to hike holding him. Like, no, like with they. He needs to come down from the eagle and be standing there holding Mithros, and like both families come in. Uh, that's all. That's all. That's all I ask. Somehow, however y'all want to arrange that, I'm fine with that. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, Milthaliel, I agree. If we build the 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 elves' dread of the eagles' approach really well, then it will lead to a W catastrophe for the viewer. Right? Not only is this not a disaster, it's an act of grace. Right? And that's kind of amazing. I think that could be really, really good. Um, okay, so let's think about the subplots. Um, so we've got three subplots identified for episode one the Ang- in the Angban story. So we've got the reaction to the sunlight, and we need to be doing that, the cloud of smoke. So that's going to be happening. That's going to be uh, uh, certainly involved. By the time Fingon is up there, we're going to have the, the darkness and everything. Um, uh, I, point three, I think that fits into my category of stuff I don't want to depict, right? Um, I don't, I, we definitely don't need more. I definitely don't want Morgoth alarmed. I don't want to show an alarmed Morgoth. Um, uh, I'm okay with showing Morgoth occasionally angry, right? But I don't want him to, I, 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 we don't need Morgoth being like, you know, oh shoot, like, uh, man, like, uh, I didn't see that coming. Right, again, because then we're, he's going to be, he's going to be down into comic villain quickly if we do that. Um, so, um, uh, anyway, um, um, but yeah, yeah. Okay. So uh, that's fine. I, I don't think we need to depict that, uh, Kierden's story. Um, yes. So we, we, yep, absolutely. The first contact between the Sindar and the, and the Noldor that happens in the middle of this. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and including also, I like, if we want to have, Galadriel and Celeborn see each other for the first time. Absolutely cool with that. I don't want to have any, I don't actually, as I was joking about last time, want to have a slow motion, you know, uh, you know, fuzzy glamour uh, uh, (laughs) picture of, you know, Galadriel's eyes as she gazes into Celeborn's eyes. Uh, But anyway, that, that they meet for the first time, I think would happen here. Um, The reforging of Ringil. Sure. Yeah. And of course, what I like about the reforging of Ringil here, we can, Fingolfin can, we need to make it clear that Fingolfin is reforging this, like it's, this is, this sword is for Morgoth, right? 
he is dedicated to fighting Morgoth and he is, this is going to be his reaper. And we saw him breaking Ringo before. This is also about, we are anticipating his taking up the, um, uh, the, the preparing to take up the leadership, right? You know, when he becomes the high King that will have been sort of anticipated in his reforging of Ringo, I think, right. We can show him like he is, um, fully planning to, um, uh, play a very central role in the war against Morgoth to come. Um, uh, and yeah, so Marie, exactly. Having that interact with his hearing about Fe- his learning that Feanor is dead, right? Um, that can interact with his reforging of Ringo in complicated ways, right? To be like, th- there's a sense in which he's, he's not exactly following in his brother's footsteps. He's, he's differentiating himself from Feanor. And yet, he does feel that, like, now the burden of their father's vengeance is on him, right? Um, so, yeah, I like... But, of course, one of the tensions here in the Feanorian camp, right, one of the questions is there should be at least some question in the audience's mind. Um, is he, like, is he reforging Ring- Ringil? Is this foreshadowing war with the Feanorians, right? Um, he's like, oh... Look, it's the sons of Fanor. Fanor's dead. The sons of Fanor are still around. Hang on, I'm gonna reforge my sword and I'll be right back with you. Right? I mean, that, that, I think that to show that war is a real possibility, that they could end up fighting each other on both sides, and especially it's going to be primarily the 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 the, the Fingolfinians, right? Who are going to be? Uh, I think they're going to be the most aggressive ones, especially Angrod, probably. Um, so anyway, there should be some doubts. I think. Um, the warlike preparations can be uneasy in this way. Um, and then of course, yes, we get the tension with Kierden, the really awkward three way, right? Between Kierden and Fingolfin and Kurafin, who is presumably the spokesman when Mithros is gone. Right. Um, so yeah, like the, what to tell them the, like, to what extent do we pretend to be buds over here? Right. Oh no, there's no uh, problems. No, we're all happy. We just have separate camps. Cause you know, that's just sort of what we do. Um, anyway, yeah, there's, there's uh, thinking about how to do that tension and to articulate that I think would be, would be a really important thing. Good. Good. Um, all right. Excellent. Um, Episode two, we're just about done, but, um, yeah, Marie, I do want to do episode two in 10 minutes. Maybe we we can, we can come back to it at the beginning of next time. Some also, but I think we can, <laughs> we can certainly look at some of the main lines, right? Um, the, the, the main plot line, it seems to me of episode two is the Noldor, uh, reconciliation, right? Mythros, which has been prepared and anticipated in that visual image of Fingon holding uh, the uh, maimed Mithros in his arms. Um, Mithros, you know, time has passed. Mithros is better. Mithros seeds the high kingship. Fingolfin is crowned. Um, And also I would add to that then what we get there at the bottom, Galadriel going forth to Doriath. Because remember, we're getting to do the stuff that Tolkien didn't do, right? So Tolkien added a sentence in the Silmarillion about how Goadriel also wanted to have kingdom set up on her own, but he did not really integrate Goadriel into the story of the Silmarillion, right? So if 
we are going to be thinking about Goadriel as we mean to do all the way through. She's got to be a part of that political scene. This is not just a two-way struggle between Fingolfin and Feanorians, right? There are other players in this. And Goadriel, though she's a minor player compared to those two, she's in the picture, I think. She's, and we put her in the picture in season three with her, you know, we set up a little, like, sort of at least the hints of a rivalry between her and Fingolfin, right? Her desire to lead, her putting herself forward. And I was suggesting that her um, emissary status to Doriath would be part of that. Like, she goes because she's trying to carve her own place, right? She submits to Fingolfin. She's not going to put herself forward as a candidate for the high kingship, right? Hey, I, I've got an idea. How about you all fight about it and just make me king, right? I, that's not what I see Galadriel doing in this conference. But again, she's she's still thinking about it. She's still putting herself forward. She's submitting because she, she, she had that moment with Fingolfin, right? She acknowledged Fingolfin's leadership at the end of season three. And we don't want to undermine that. We don't make her go backwards on that. But she's not given up either, right? She's not to, She's not yet had her humbling crisis, right? That's going to come when she meets Melian. So the Galadriel who agrees to go off to Doriath is still the Galadriel which is on the sort of alarming trajectory, right? Um, and well, why wouldn't yeah. she consider herself a, a candidate for High King? Well, um, that particular Galadriel pre Melian, she might privately. But I don't think she would uh, put herself forward, especially okay. because of the respect that she gained for Fingolfin. It is an important yeah. – I mean, uh, Trish, you raise uh, indirectly a really important point. Um, we need to resist the temptation to think about elvish succession in a purely uh, primogeniture kind of primogeniture. way. Yeah. It's clearly not a primogeniture thing exclusively. It obviously factors in. Right. With, you know, uh, the, the question about like Mithros's claim is based on a kind of primogeniture. Right. Um, but. But it's not a guarantee. It's right. It's not a guarantee. No. Right. Um, and uh, and I think that we could especially again, if we in as much as we want, because I think that we do based on the discussion we had about this a couple months back, we want to differentiate what it means to be a king among the elves. Right. From what it means to be a king among the humans. Um, it just has different. Um, different connotations. So um, it should, I, I think I, it should seem less absurd. I mean, if the youngest of all of that generation, because she is, right? She is, as Marie says, she's the youngest of the cousins, right? If the youngest of the cousins puts herself forward and is like, no, I should be king, right? It would look silly from, a, like, you know, we don't want people being like, okay, Galadriel, do we have to spell out for you exactly how far down the line of succession you are here, right? That's ridiculous. Um, it shouldn't be ridiculous among the elves, I don't think. Um, because again, we, we convey that kingship means something different. The idea of passing on the kingship should mean something different. Um, but, um, but I don't think she puts herself forward. I think she's still a candidate in her own mind, but I don't think she puts herself forward because that would have her going back and undoing the character work that she did in the previous season, right? She's learned yeah. from her conflict with Fingolfin in season three. And what she has learned is she still needs to bide her time. She still needs to learn. Right. She's not ready yet. It's not that she thinks herself unqualified. It's that she thinks herself not ready yet. Now is not the time, right? Now is not the time for her moment when of leadership, her moment of, 
of uh, of ascendancy, right? And I would also think in her mind then, because of that, and because of this immortality issue, I mean, it's not like succession is a funny word to use when it yeah. comes oh, to absolutely. elves, you know? Yeah. So the I would imagine it would be more like... a line of succession, yeah, yeah. Right, right. So her realm, she, in her mind, is probably something that would be a subset of the, you know, of the kingdom. In other words, she would get allotted her domain by the king to go rule. That's a, I mean, I was what I would think because sure. she wouldn't be thinking of becoming king someday because who knows? Right. I mean, and, and it could and, never happen. And that's, of course, another way in which it would be different, right? Presumably, you could become king in a way other than just like the old king dying. Because, again, as you say, that's not exactly what's first and foremost on our radar screen at, among the elves, right? Um, right. So, I mean, it had to be a shock, you know, to even think about initially. Yes. Oh. Gosh, but, king's gonna die. You know, the king's yeah, gonna die. Wow. Yeah, exactly. But it also then does raise the question, right? It raises the issue, and uh, and the question of like, what does it mean for like Finway was the head of the Noldor, right? I mean, he was yeah. like the he was and everybody he was the he was the head of household, right? Now right. that we have to deal with the succession issue, it's almost like one of the things that they're dealing with is like, what does it mean to be the high king, especially in the new Beleriandic right. context, right? What does right. it mean to be the high king? And we decided that it meant basically to be kind of first among equals and commander in chief in the military efforts, right? Those were the main right, things right. that it meant to be high king. So putting ourselves. So that in the, doesn't in, preclude her going off and setting up her own version of Gondolin, say. Not at or, all. Or, Nor, you know. I think, does it necessarily preclude her thinking long term, right? Her thinking, right. okay, I'll, first I need to set up my step one, set up my own kingdom, right? And establish right. myself among my peers here. Step two, right. maybe down the road. It's not that maybe down the road, you know, Uncle Fingolfin will croak. That's not necessarily <laughs> her thinking. Instead, she's thinking maybe someday I'll set up my own kingdom and then maybe the time will come when the leadership will need to change. Right. I, yeah. I, I right. think it's right. the idea that the high king might at some point step aside and say, actually, I think we can all agree it's time for some, you know. There are right. reasons why this other person should be high king now. I don't see any reason why that couldn't happen, right? We don't. I could see, see her debating this with Kelleborn. I mean, I could maybe. see her having conversations about this Kelleborn, where they'd almost like be debating it. Yeah, you know, where she could say to him, "I there could come a day when a king, the king should 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 change, and you know, mm -hmm. I I could be in that position, or you know, so that we get to see her thinking because she trusts him and that he's somebody that she would right right she would share those kind of thoughts with right. Right, exactly. Yeah, so I mean, I think that there's a lot that we can do with setting up her. But but again, but my, the the fundamental point I want to make is that like we need to get this Galad we we need to get glimpses of this Galadriel. This like kind of chastened after season three, uh, you know, slightly older and wiser, but still ambitious Galadriel. Right. That we're getting here in episode two, and that that is what is motivating her to go to Doriath because we want to set up the. And I agree, um, Marie. Yes. When Galadriel doesn't set up a kingdom, it should be weird, right? She's the last one to not have a kingdom, which she's like the first one ready to do it, right? She's already planning in her mind. Uh, and this is one of the ways, you know, what it, she's trying to, part of what she's doing in going to Doriath is trying to feather her own nest in a sense, right? She's trying to, to, to set up, if I'm going to go over there and I'm going to, I'm going to set up myself as a, a prominent figure among the Noldor, emissary to the, to the Sindar when I meet Thingol, right, I'll be talking with him and I'm sure I can set up a sweet spot. In other words, she's kind of thinking of doing something like what Finrod ends up doing, right? 
in Nargothrond. So she's imagining something kind of in that direction. Um, that, you know, a cooperative thing. I'll get, I'll, I'll recruit Thingol's help, and I'll do that way. I can, I can set up kind of a an alliance and power base among the Sindar as well. She's thinking in these kind of ambitious terms, right? And then she doesn't, and she's the only one left without a kingdom. And it's, it's weird. Like we can see that she has really. It's one of the ways we convey that she's really had a crisis. Okay, all right. We'll clean this up. There's there's a few more things to talk about and maybe looking more in depth at the at the plots and subplots of episode two. So we can return to this a little bit at the beginning, but I think we have a lot to work with there. Um, and so for next time, we we want to we want to keep going the next few episodes. We'll we'll tidy up episode two and then I want to go through uh, at least three more. I, I, I think we can make it through episode five. Uh, maybe that's my my ambition will be to make it through episode five um, next time. Um, betting pools will be open at the top of the hour. So place your bets. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and which reminds me to say that our next session will be on Friday, April 19th. So we're back to our old, the original schedule that was originally, uh, 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 uh posted. Um, so two weeks from today will be our next session, uh, Friday, April 19th. And we should be on the every two week schedule again, unless something unexpected occurs, um, <laughs> uh, uh, unless a disc catastrophe uh, occurs. Um, and um, anyhow, so yeah, so we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to work through this. My hope is to do, to have only about three more sessions where we're going, we're kind of looking through uh, doing our final combing through the episodes uh, uh, here and then we'll shift to looking at the creative content after that. So um, I know it's, you know, again, because it's very different, right? It's very different um, from how we've done the seasons before, as we've talked about. Uh, normally, like having just talked about episode one and some of episode two, it would it seems like we're actually much closer to the end of film film season four than it might seem like we are here. So, um, uh, yeah, we will see. Um yeah. Oh, right. Maria's reminding me that we were meant to have creative discussions in between. Great idea. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I forgot about that. Yeah. No. Let's do that. Let's 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 stick. Let's, I, I, this is that's not me changing the plan. That's me forgetting the plan. So uh, so yeah. No. That's an excellent idea. Let's do that. Let's do that. Um, I, so maybe we'll do that for next time. I don't know. You guys will figure this out. And when next, what does that meet, mean? Having creative discussions. In okay. Between. So, so the idea was to do like a couple episodes at a time in each session, but not just string them all along to actually take the, like some of the, 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 the creative discussions and intersperse that among, since we've already been talking okay, about a lot it. of the oh, concepts. Okay. So we'll come back to the, some of the, the creative work that people are doing um, instead of right. doing all the episodes and then doing the post. At the end. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That, so, sounds, that makes sense. I, I'd forgotten about that. Um, so, um, yeah, <laughs> Brie Melvin just uh, suddenly popped up out of nowhere. Yeah, I mentioned the creative stuff and then like, there, there's Brie. Did I conjure you, Brie, by, by alluding to it? That's really great. Um, yeah, no, that's cool. So, um, uh, great, great. Um, okay, good. Yeah, so we'll, we'll, um, we'll fix so, yeah, so maybe we can talk. About, okay, great. So, yeah, you, I, I will... Uh, I submit myself to your direction, what what you guys think we should do. So maybe we won't talk about a few episodes next time. Maybe we'll shift and talk about creative stuff next time and then come back 
if you, you know, we'll clean up number two and then come back and do, you know, three, four and five uh, in the one after, you know, in uh, uh, what is it? The first week of May. Um, yeah. OK, sure. Yeah, that's uh, that's great. Um, we'll uh, we'll we'll work on that. We'll work on that. Um, uh, I'm totally open to that and I'd forgotten about it. That'll be fun. So we'll see. Next week, next session in two weeks will be a surprise, even to me. Um, but uh, I certainly, for those of you who are listening, <laughs> I encourage you uh, to participate in these. Discuss- There's so much going on behind the scenes on the discussion boards. Uh, people putting in a lot of time thinking through these things and making suggestions and submitting creative stuff. Where all There's- the real action is. Yeah, that's, that's where right. all the real action is. Yeah, exactly. We're just trying to kind of keep up and and uh, 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 you kind of bring together some of the things that are being discussed there. So. Um, yeah. All right. Awesome. So thanks everybody for all your work, both, uh, both before and, uh, during this session here. Uh, and I look forward to our next discussion in a fortnight. Thanks. Uh, thanks Dave and Trish. Glad you could both be with me here today. Oh yeah, it was great. A relief. Yay. (laughs) Plan to be here in two weeks too. Very good. (laughs) Very good. Okay. Uh, excellent. So I'll say farewell to all of you guys for now then. Thanks for listening and Godspeed.